Hashem Hashem Naseh V'Natsliach Shiur Torah Good to be in Aventura again The Breslov Center Baruch Hashem The uh, Shurim uh, Baruch Hashem online at least Are uh, continuing to change lives Continuing to Get people back to Hashem Get people to leave idol worship Get people to leave all types of nonsense That's controlling our Neshamot Without us even knowing You know one of the biggest problems That uh, a person can have is being sick and not knowing that he has a disease. And the reason why is because even though logically sometimes you would think, listen, maybe if I have chas shalom, somebody has a disease, maybe they're better off not knowing. They live their life. Why, why, if you know chas shalom, you have a disease, you think, hey, oh, I'm better off not knowing. I live my life. I enjoy my life. What, what needs this tzara in my head? I'll be depressed. I'll think about it all the time. I'll have to go to doctors. Let me just live my life. But that's actually the wrong mentality. And the reason why is because if, let's say, for example, you really were living, you really were living, then maybe you're right. Maybe. But how many of us are really living? Most of us are just getting by. Most of us are just trying to do whatever we can to buy ourselves tomorrow. We wake up, we eat, we drink, we go to work, we work, we get yelled at by somebody, either our boss our wife, our husband, our customer, somebody that cut us off on the highway, we get annoyed, we get upset, we finish work, we go home, we eat, we drink, we do whatever we need to do to waste some time until we get tired enough to go to sleep, and we do it all over again tomorrow. Wake up, eat, sleep, work, sleep again. That's it. That's, that's, in general, that's life for most people. And yes, in between... You have a vacation that you saved up for for the last two years. In between, you have a nice conversation that cheers you up. In between, you have some fun with the kids, with the family, with the wife, the husband. In between, you have little moments of fun, of pleasure. But in reality, the overwhelming majority of life is not really living. Or most, most of your life is preparing for the moment of life, of what you view as good life. So in reality, most of us are not really living, especially if we're not connected to Torah, if we're not connected to Hashem Barach, then it's virtually impossible for us to live, because we have no idea what the cure is, we have no idea that we even have a disease, and we have no idea how to even be happy. We're constantly doing things 
to try to make ourselves happy, either buying a new car or house or something material. But generally, most people try to attain happiness through something physical. And since happiness is an emotional feeling, it's, it's a spiritual feeling, you can't attain something spiritual by getting something material. It's impossible. It's different, it's the wrong cure. So in reality, most people are not living. They're just getting by. They're just preparing themselves and working to finally live tomorrow, next week, next month, maybe in six months, maybe next year, maybe when they retire. Everyone works their whole life. Why? Because one day they want to retire. That's, that's really, it's old, there's an old uh, story. Some people say it's Henry Ford. Some people say it's somebody else. But a uh, successful businessman goes to a, uh, some island on vacation and he sees this guy just sitting there and fishing. Simple guy and he walks up to the guy and he says, what are you doing? He's like, I'm fishing. He goes, don't you have work? He goes, no, no, this is what I do. I just fish. Goes, well, why don't you get a job? He goes, for what? So you can get money. For what? So you could probably you could get married. For what? So you can have kids. What are your kids for? So you could raise them and enjoy them. For what? So they can get married. And so then they can have grandkids. For what? So then after that you can get yourself even a vacation house. Once the kids move out of the house, you get yourself a vacation house somewhere else. He goes, what am I going to do there? He goes, over there, you can relax, go fishing. He goes, tipesh, fool, I'm already doing that now. So, most of us are waiting to get to the fishing trip. So to say, listen, I'm already living life, the reality of it is that most of us aren't. On the other hand, if you tell somebody that they're sick and now they know about it yes initially it's very hard to know that somebody has something that they don't want whether it's inside their mind or inside their body it's a foreign object foreign feeling a negative feeling and if you don't have a serious connection with Hashem it's very very easy to get into depression and people can self-destruct with this feeling of, of emptiness because you feel like you, when, you, when you're sick you feel alone but oh Hashem we had the tikkun of having a little bit of health issues and I can tell you for a fact one of the first feeling you get aside from pain and agony and so on is feeling like you're alone feeling like no one understands you feeling like no one can relate to you no one can empathize with you sometimes you don't feel like anybody cares but oh Hashem my, uh, my wife had and an extraordinary ability to, to, uh, to be there for me in every way, shape, or form. Uh, but uh, for the most part of the world around you, you feel like you're alone. Oh, and actually, uh, this, uh, before I forget, this year also is for um, uh, a, uh, in honor of, of my dear wife for her birthday, our uh, Hebrew birthday, Baruch Hashem, since, a, uh, since our conversion. May uh, Hashem bless her with many, many more years Happiness, success, all the mesirut nefesh she does to let us teach, learn, and do everything that we do. Our entire Torah and everything that we do is all really hers. Uh, and also, a, uh, a for Ilui Nishmat, a uh, Shlomo Ben Rivka, 
a uh, the brother of a friend of a dear friend of mine, who uh, just uh, unfortunately 30 days ago passed on to the next world. May Hashem raise his neshama, and may the Torah that we learned today also help his neshama get higher and higher. Bezat Hashem. Amen. So. When someone is experiencing serious difficulty, it's very easy to feel them feel alone. But then once you've overcome that hurdle, once you've beat that big battle, that mental struggle, you could also get to a point of having a sense of relief. And the reason why is because it's better to know the enemy that you're dealing with than to not know that you're even fighting. And sometimes when you know people have a hard time making a decision, whether it's to move to a new community, or it's to go to a new job, or to, uh, to do anything new, uh, many times people stop themselves from doing it. They refrain from actually making big decisions, and they stop, and they're, they're content in the existing relationship uh, that they have. And one of the main reasons is because even though everything sounds good, the grass is always greener on the other side. You don't really know. You don't really know. Once you get there, you don't really know if it's grass or it's just turf. You don't really know if that boss is really, really nice once you work for him. Or he's just nice because he's trying to recruit you. But he becomes Haman or Paol as soon as you, as soon as you get a paycheck from him. You don't know. So what happens is that you're, you're, you think to yourself and you know your, your subconscious tells you, listen, it's better that you continue working for this Paro than going to the Paro you don't know. Because the Paro you know, okay, he's a rasha, he's difficult, he's this and that, but at least you know what you're dealing with. This guy, who knows, maybe he's worse. And that's actually what's happening in the real world today. You have a lot of these Rashaim leaders, dictators from uh, previous generations that uh, you know destroyed their country, destroyed their people, whether it was uh, Fidel Castro, Imachimov, Zichro, or it's the, uh, the guy from uh, Venezuela, uh, Chavez, these people much tortured their people for many, many years. And everyone was very happy once they died. Unfortunately for those people is that the new leaders are even worse. Especially if you look at the situation in Venezuela, this new Rasham Elusham Maduro is Mamash starving his people. I watched something, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and I wanted to cry. I almost, I wanted to cry seeing what's happening to these people, you know, because they're all in hiding. They're all reporting to the media in hiding because if anybody knew they're reporting to the media, they'd kill them on the spot. Now, to the world at large, it looks like everyone in Venezuela is, oh, they're happy. They're, it's a very rich country as far as oil. Nothing's missing. But you actually ask the people, and they tell you, listen, I lost 35 pounds because there's no food. You go to the supermarket, all of the aisles of Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all the drinks and the snacks, full. But actual food, things that actually make real food, nothing, empty. Who has the food? The black market. Who controls the black market? The government. So the, the government is the biggest criminal in the country. But who's going to tell them not to do it? So people are almost starving to death. To the point where you saw this one poor family, this uh, couple that's uh, both teachers, they have a little cute son, and uh, they have to take turns, the parents have to take turns of who eats dinner. Either the husband or the wife eats dinner for the night, so they have enough food to give the kid. Little five, six year old little kid, he eats, and then one of the parents eats. Shem 
So I'm thinking to myself, listen, you know, you have this tikkun, you have this problem, you know, you have all these different headaches. Hey, oh, you get people's headaches. I got all these different things that you deal with. And I'm like, you know what? What we have is headaches. They have a problem. We have headaches. You have a flat tire. You have a money issue. You have whatever, different stupid things that you deal with in life that you stress out all over. But it's all headaches. It goes away. Fix it. No fixes. Whatever. It goes away. Not having food for your kid? That's a problem. Not being able to leave your country? That's a problem. Having to pay $400, the equivalent of $400 for a piece of cheese, which is almost a month's salary. It's not like they're making millions. You have to spend almost a month's salary on a piece of cheese. And anyone that dares donate to the people in Venezuela, which a lot of people from Florida are from, you know, are from, of Spanish descent. They're from Venezuela and other countries, other countries in South America. So they donate. They donate a lot of medicine because there's no medicine in the hospitals. One of the hospital administrators said there hasn't been medicine, there hasn't been antibiotics in the hospital for a year and a half. No antibiotics. We're not talking about, you know, cures for cancer. We're not talking about cures for diabetes. We're talking about antibiotics. You have a, uh, you know, any type of flu. You have any type, anything. You have a cold. Antibiotic. If you don't have a cold, you have antibiotic. One, two days, you're done. Which, by the way, just from experience, if the antibiotic that you're taking does not work within 48 hours, it's the wrong antibiotic, you have to change it. Don't listen to the doctors that tell you, take it for a week or 10 days and then it'll finally work. No, it's not true. If it doesn't affect your body within 48 hours, it's the wrong antibiotic, you just have to try a new one. And in general, doctors, they're not geniuses like people think they are. It's all trial and error. They don't actually know which antibiotic is going to affect you. When they give you an antibiotic, when they diagnose you, they tell you, oh, you have this, you have that. They don't actually know for sure if this antibiotic is going to cure you. Because even though it may have cured many people with a similar problem, you may have a different germ. You may have a different anti, you know, something in your body that this antibiotic, you may be immune to it. But they give it to you. Like, yo, say, listen, they give you an antibiotic and Bezal Hashem, it works out. Hopefully they say Bezal Hashem. But it, which, by the way, every time you take medicine, you should say a blessing. There's a blessing to say, which I'll tell you after the show if you want. Uh, to remind ourselves that Hashem really is the one that decides whether this piece of chalk or gel is going to work or not. Because the chalk could either be for the board or it could be for medicine. Hashem decides. But the point being is that you have antibiotics and with no problem here in America. You have antibiotics with no problem in Israel. You have anti- all this medicine, all the stuff we take for granted. It's easy to get. You go to this supposedly rich country, as far as with oil is concerned, people can't get antibiotics for a year and a half. Which means that someone with a common cold can mamash die. This is like ancient history. When they talk about dinosaurs, that's what they talk about. Because Am Yisrael always had medicine. But the ignorance amongst the, 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 the nations that didn't have anything, they would die. That's a problem. That, my friends, is a mamash, a serious, serious problem. And about, of course, Hashem runs the world, Hashem knows what He's doing. There's a reason of why everything is happening. But these wicked people are mamash, a tool that Hashem is using to 
fulfill his will, whatever it is, whatever the purpose of all of it is, I'm sure it's for the good. There's no, no doubt in my mind that it's for the good, even though it's very difficult to hear, and very difficult, I'm sure, for them to experience. But it breaks your heart when you find out that there's, poor, there's people here that are donating a lot of money to get them the medicine. They send, you know, tons and tons of medicine, tons and tons of food, and what happens? The government steals part of it, or all of it. Or, it finally gets to the hospital, but they send a soldier say, no, 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 medicine is not allowed in the hospital. Mamash, they want the people to die. This is the craziness we live in. This is, Mamash, the craziness we live in. So, in a world like today, if you don't have a Shem, it's impossible to live with peace of mind. Because we're, Mamash, five seconds away from some type of craziness happening whether it's craziness that's happening in South America, or it's craziness that's happening in North America. What, do you think everything is fine in America? You think everything is fine between the relationship that America has with Russia, or America has with many of the other countries around the world that call them the world's cop? A lot of people, a lot of countries hate America. And many of them, if they had the opportunity and the power and the uh, courage, they would go to war with America tomorrow if they want. Needless to say, the horrendous situation that Am Yisrael has in between all of them. Because with all the wars that everyone else has, at the end, somehow the Jews get blamed for everything. Somehow it's our fault. Somebody fell on a banana? Oh no, no, it's probably some Jew wrapped a banana in a strange way. One of the old Jews, the Jew didn't even come to, doesn't even know anything about the banana. He just ate a banana next to him. Because no, no, probably he put some... Somehow it's our fault. Somehow it's our fault. Why is it our fault? Because Hashem says, listen, one of the prophecies, one of the promises that I will make to you, and you will see, Bezat Hashem, is a new uh, short film that's coming out that we, Baruch Hashem, our team made, and Bezat Hashem will come out in the next couple of days. And it's one of the prophecies that Hashem makes the Parashat uh, Kitavo. One of the scary parts of the show that talks about you know, Hashem rebuking us and promising a punishment if we don't fulfill His will. And one of the prophecies that He says is going to happen is that if we choose not to worship Him, we choose not to work for Him, we choose to work, you know, do whatever we feel like it. He says modesty, we don't feel like being modest. He says Shabbat, we don't feel like keeping Shabbat. We don't feel like listening to Him. We feel like being... Independent of God. He says, well, especially you, the Jewish people, that are obligated to do everything I say, you're either going to work for me, or you're going to work for the enemy. And this, if anyone actually understood the words in this parasha, immediately you get Yilat Shemayim. If you didn't have Yilat Shemayim your entire life, after you actually understand that verse, you get Yilat Shemayim. And for anyone that doesn't have time, or ability to open the Chumash to actually look at this verse and see and understand what its meaning is. That's what we have the video. So the video is going to come out in a couple of days. I've already watched it at least 15 to 20 times and each time I get scared. I get more scared. So, the guy that's going back to our original story, the guy that actually has the sickness and knows about it, he's much better off. And the reason why is because if... He now knows, after he overcomes the depression, after he overcomes the bad news hurdle, he can now face it. 
And he can now make educated decisions based on the new information that he has at hand. If he didn't have the information, then he'd continue going to work. And he'd continue working extra overtime, two, three, four hours a day, so he could save money for the once-a-year vacation that he wants. And work extra two, three hours, or even a second job for the house he wants to buy. And then work extra two, three hours so he could pay for college, because college is a million dollars now. If somebody wants to actually go to a, a real good college, you have to literally come up with, you know, if you have a few kids, you have to come up with a million dollars. A decent college is fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Not that we're advocating people going to college for the because for the most part, most Jews that go to college are just wasting their time unless they're going for a specific profession. And most anybody that goes to college is just wasting their time. And one of the reasons why colleges have become so expensive is because the government has manipulated the system just like they did with the housing market. They wanted everybody to own a house, so they made Lending much easier, which created a housing bubble. In essence, they did the same exact thing with education. They want everyone to be in college, even though not everybody should go to college. For, for the most part, most people shouldn't go to college because to get a communications degree is a waste of money. To get a degree in English, you're an idiot. You just wasted your parents' money. To get, uh, to get any of these degrees, to get, I don't know, a physical education degree... You just wasted a quarter million dollars and four years of your life, or in today's world, seven years, because, you know, who wants to go to college for only four years? You want to drink for a little longer. So you want to party for a little longer, so you go to college for seven years. You extend, and you waste more and more of Abba and Ima's money and make more and more sins. It's a complete waste of money. But our Western mindset tells us that we need to go to college in order for us to get the job. But in reality, anyone that has any experience in the business world knows that a college means absolutely nothing. If you went to grad school, maybe it means something. But only if you were top of your class. If you're just a regular guy, you got a degree, yeah. maybe you get $50,000 a year. Maybe. Maybe even I get a job. I have one, one, uh, one student. She has a phenomenal degree. Everything is great. Great grades, everything. She got a job at, uh, was it Staples? Or one of these... Uh, Stores that sells, you know, you work for minimum wage. Just a degree. Costed two, three hundred thousand dollars to get this degree. She can't get a job. So just because you get a degree doesn't mean much any, anymore. Point being is that the guy that's working his whole life for this vacation, because he doesn't know that he's sick, he could be potentially wasting his life. At the same time, he doesn't have much of it. Because all of us think that we're going to live till 120. No one thinks they're going to die tomorrow. Everyone thinks they're going to live many, many more years. Even if you're Warren Buffett or Kirk Corian or any of these oldies that have billions and billions of dollars, you still go to work tomorrow even though you're 90 years old because maybe, just maybe they're going to find a cure for life and you're going to live till 100 million. Point being is that everyone thinks they're going to live a long life. Now what if the guy has a disease, Chas Shalom, and he only has, mamash, 12 months to live? Him continuing to go to work is, is foolish. Him spending one minute working is foolish. Him spending one minute not fulfilling his dream, his life, uh, you know, spending time with his family and his loved ones, is foolish. Which is the reason why the guy that has the disease and knows about it, but was able to overcome it, he's much better off. Why? Because at least after, let's say, it takes him a month to overcome the depression... 
or two months even. At least he's got ten good months. He can do whatever he wants. If he wanted to always go someplace in the world, he can go. He wants to go to the Kotel Malavi, he can go to the Kotel Malavi now, not wait till next year because there's no next year. If he, uh, you know, has been missing out on his kid's life, finally he can catch up with his kids. If he's missing out on his marriage, finally he can fix his marriage. He can finally do a lot of the things that he's always procrastinating because it's in our nature to procrastinate. Which brings us to our Mishnah. Our Mishnah in Bet Yudchet, uh, chapter 2, Mishnah 18, says, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Evezeir bekriyat shma, ubetfila, kshata mitpalel, al taas tfilatecha keva, el arachamim vetachanonim lefnei hamakom shenemar, Translation Rabbi Shimon, one of the Talmidim of Rabban Yochanan, says his, uh, his wisdom, his three things, just like we've learned in the last couple of weeks, his three things that are he believes are life changers that are the foundation of a connection that you would have between yourself and Hashem Barach. So first he says, be meticulous in reading the prayer of Shema. Shema said that we read twice a day plus Shema Lamita. You're obligated to read at least twice a day. And the reason why you read Shema Lamita, the practical reason is because it's good to say some divrei Torah before you go to sleep. The other reasons, the more Kabbalistic reasons, is that it protects you when you're sleeping, whether it's for wasting seed, or from demons, all types of things that you don't really want in your life. So having the Torah on your lips before you go to sleep, Kriyat protects you from that. But your obligation, what you have to do, is twice a day. Men have to do it twice a day, women have to do it once a day, but nonetheless, this is an obligation from the Torah. There are... Three major prayers in Judaism. You have Shema Yisrael, you have the Amidah, both of which, Shema Yisrael you say twice a day, Amidah you say three times a day, and then you have Birkat HaMazon, which is anytime you eat bread. So now he says, when you're saying Kriyat Shema, be very meticulous, be very careful. Okay, we'll go into what that actually means shortly. He says, when you pray, which is also referring not to just to Shema, but also referring to Amidah now. When you pray, do not make your prayer a set routine. Don't get so comfortable. Where, you know, of course, you say it once, twice, three times, eventually it becomes a little easier. When I, I remember when I first started praying, the whole shoe would be finished, and I'm still in like the first bracha. And I felt like, well, I'm an idiot. Like, I don't understand. How do they read so fast? Look, I, I mean, I was born in Israel. I wasn't. I only got the you know, fourth grade education because you know I left Israel. We left when I was ten years old. So I wasn't exactly a Talmid Chacham or anything in Hebrew, but still, I mean, they're literally they finished the whole thing. I'm still like the first couple of paragraphs. How's it possible? How could somebody read so fast? And eventually, you start realizing that once you actually read it a few more times and a few more times and a few more times, the the words come to you a little easier. You start understanding what you're saying. It's a lot smoother. Little by little, you're normal pace. Now, I'm still not as fast as most synagogues that I go to, but that's by choice. If I want to, Hashem, I could be just as fast as anybody there, but it's by choice. And the reason why is because I choose to have kavanah. 
I choose to try to take my time and actually understand what I'm saying and you know try to connect to the words as much as I can. Not necessarily in every prayer, but Hashem, Bezat Hashem, I'll, I'll do tshuva on those. But nonetheless, you know, in many places you go to shul, you pray. Most people are going through the motion. They're already looking at the clock as they came come in, not because to see if they're on time, but to see how long they have to tolerate being in shul. It's like they went to school. You know, you went to school as a little kid. You're not looking forward to go to school and learn. You're looking for when's the break so I can hang out with my friends. Same thing people look at sometimes, unfortunately. Shul. They go to shul, they're like, oh, is this chazan, does he read fast? Does he go through the whole thing within a few minutes? It's like usually the ones that, the chazanim, that read the fastest, they're the most popular. Chazan that finishes Amidah, two, three minutes, Mashiach. <laughs> the tzaddik that takes 15, 20 minutes to finish Amidah, oh, no, it's too slow for me, he's old. Well, he's old, he's 35 years old. No, no, it's old-fashioned, it's not for me. You go. So, here he's telling you specifically the opposite of what our mentality, what our Yetzirah is telling us every day. He's saying, do not make your prayer a set routine. What does it mean, set routine? He says, don't get so used to it, to a point, we're just breezing through it without really caring what you're saying. And we'll go into more, more of what that means momentarily. Rather, your prayer should be a mercy and a supplication before the uh, before Hashem, as it is said, and He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, and relentful of punishment. This is in Sefer Yoel, chapter two, verse thirteen. So He says, your prayer not only you shouldn't get too comfortable with it, but you should realize that your prayer is each time you pray, it's tshuva. In essence, what he's trying to tell you is that every time you pray in front of Hashem Barach, you should realize that you're in front of Hashem Barach. And if you realize for even a minute, for a second, that you're in front of Hashem Barach when you're praying, immediately you should say, I'm sorry. Even if you don't know what you did. You should say, I'm sorry. Because you definitely did something wrong. Whether it's Chilul Shabbat, or it's Tzniyut, or it's kosher, or you got angry, or you got this, or you have no emunah, something, you did something. There's no such thing as a righteous person who doesn't sin. It's also Mishnah and Avot. There's no such thing. Everybody makes some type of a sin. So it means, so immediately say, I'm sorry. And then start thinking about, what am I sorry for? And the good news is, is that it's already a verse in the Torah. There's multiple times where it says, this is actually one of the things we say, uh, these first few words. We actually say it in our Shachrit, uh, and also we say it many times uh, on Monday and on Thursday prayers. And we also say it many, many times on the uh, uh, Yom Kippur. That, uh, in essence, you're, this is part of the secret prayer that the Satan gave to Moshe Rabbeinu, which says, if you say this prayer, Hashem will forgive you. So you're reminding Hashem in essence, not that Hashem needs your reminder, you're in essence reminding yourself of Hashem's midot, Hashem's quality, uh, traits. He's slow to anger, he's abound, abounding in, uh, in, in kindness, he's relentful even if, he, if there's punishment, he still holds himself back, he doesn't give us the full punishment. This is the reason why Amisa is still around. Technically, according to the Torah, Hashem was supposed to destroy us with the Chet with the um, 
the idol worship that we did in the Mount Sinai. The golden calf, Hashem was supposed to wipe us out. And Chazal tells us that because the, Hashem decided to listen to Moshe Rabbeinu's plea, not to destroy us, but there still had to be a punishment. There's no such thing as no punishment. Hashem forgives. He doesn't forget. He doesn't just let it go. And that's, what, that's the mistake that we have in this generation where people think, listen, I make a sin, but if Hashem didn't kill me right there, and then it's fine. Hashem he doesn't care. He's fine with it. He understands. He understands that I had to drive to shul on Shabbat. He understands because I'm going to pray. Like they, people rationalize these crazy things either because somebody told them and they believed it because it fit their desires or they just didn't learn and they just create things. No, Hashem understands that I have nothing really to do on Shabbat so I have to play with my phone. I'm sure he understands. He understands today. It's really, come on, it's hard for me not to play with my phone. I'm addicted. It's a problem, Hashem. You know, you gave me this addiction. You blame Hashem for your problem. Hashem understands that I can't really wear a kisui rosh. Why can't you wear a kisui rosh? Because no, everyone else is wearing a wig. I can't wear a uh, scarf on my head or a hat on my head. I'll look funny. That's what women say. People make fun of me. One, one uh, woman tells me, listen, if, uh, if I wear a uh, scarf, I want to wear a scarf. I know the wig is not kosher. I know you're not allowed to wear wigs. According to Allah, according to the fact that it's Abu Dazara, and a lot of other major problems that we've talked about in the past. I know I'm not allowed, but the problem is in my community, if I wear a scarf, not only will I be frowned upon, not only will they make fun of me, but I actually went to my Rav. The woman tells me this. This is just a couple days ago. She tells me, I went to my Rabbi, and I told him, listen, I learned a little bit about the wig issue. And it's a real problem. If you don't want to listen to the whole halachic issues that there is with the whole issue of wigs, not being modest, all of this, let's say you ignore that part. Let's say it doesn't happen. Fine. There's still a problem with Avodah which we did a whole shiur about. There's still a whole problem with the fact that the source of pretty much every single wig in the world comes from Avodah comes from idol worship. So you're putting idol worship on your head. This is a serious problem. So... You can't go around that problem. There's no other way. Unless you go, let's say, for example, again, you ignore option one. You ignore the Allah issue. You, let's say you find some, I don't know, hippie that wants to sell our hair. Okay, you know, you create a, a, uh, a wig that looks uh, completely like straw. That it can't really look like real hair. Let's say somehow you find a way to finagle and make a fake wig that still looks makes you look human. Fine. But in reality, how many people are actually doing this? Zero. So the woman comes to the Ram and says, listen, there's a problem with the wigs. I can't continue to wear it. It's not good for me. I know it's not good for me. I'm not telling anybody else to change, but I want to change. The Rav, the Rabbi, the Rabbi tells her, no, no, I'm going to send you to a psychiatrist. Maybe you have a mental problem. The Rabbi tells her you have a mental problem for thinking something different from the rest of the community. This is the craziness that we live in today. Yeah, question. So, the Wigs, you're saying they're coming from idol worshipping. Okay. What does that mean? Is that they come like from India, from, or a person? After really... This here was an idol worshipper? Or yeah, so after very... We have, Abou Hashem, one of uh, the biggest movies we're working on right now, films of uh, 
taking parts of different lectures that I did, plus different uh, uh, other things that we have. Uh, we're working on it, I'm hoping to come out with something within the next month or so. We have a movie about modesty coming out. And part of the movie is going to be about wigs. Bezat Hashem. And uh, after doing serious research, which is what I did for a living for 16 years in, on Wall Street, it's, I've concluded that it's virtually impossible, virtually impossible to get a wig from any store that's not sourced from idol worship. Meaning... All of the wigs that you buy from stores, it doesn't matter what the brand is, whether it's custom or it's something else, all of them, in essence, are sourced from the same place. And that place is India. In India, there's a custom to donate to donate your hair as part of idol worship, to such an extent that the average family has donated their hair, the average person um, has donated his hair at least more, more than two times in his life. Now, when you calculate that, there's over a billion people in India. It's a lot of hair. And that's why the second, the first, the richest entity in the world, in case someone doesn't know, is the Catholic Church. They own more real estate than McDonald's. But the second richest entity in the world is not Apple computers. It's not IBM. It's not Intel. It's not Microsoft. It's that church, that collection of churches that collect the hair in India, and sell it. And that's why there's pilgrims, there's different poor Indians that are coming from all over India, it's a big country, and literally there's lines out the city every single day to donate their hair, and there's even movies on it online if you'd like to watch. Uh, I, I warn you that there is some immodesty in, in some of them, so you should definitely uh, watch your eyes and, and, and really uh, wait for our movie to come out, because you'll actually see the same thing just without the immodesty. But nonetheless, the point is, is that the market's hair comes from that place. Now, how does it say, now, as part of, mer- uh, of, of uh, commerce, you have to always identify the source. Where is it coming from? So you see, for example, you buy a, uh, any product in a store, it says made in China, made in uh, someplace in Europe, made in Israel, made somewhere. So how come all of these wigs don't say made in India? It's a good question, right? If they say made in India, which is what happened about 15 years ago, there was a whole balagan in Israel where Gdolei Adol realized that all of it is coming from India and all of it is part of idol worship. They're not donating their hair for money. It's all free. They're donating their money specifically for idol worship. Now, what happened? 15 years ago approximately, the Gdolei Adol found this out, made a whole big balagan, they made a big fire, big bonfire in the middle of Jerusalem, and started people, women started taking off their wigs, replacing it with scarves and hats, and throwing the, uh, the wigs into the fire. The problem is that wherever there's money, the satan is responsible for it. So there was already a shipment of wigs from India at the port of Israel. On that day, they're burning the wigs. They just found out they're not kosher. There's already wigs where they claim they already have a kosher stamp. How do you have a kosher stamp if you didn't even know you had to get kosher uh, wigs? So you see that there's obviously a lot of cheating in this market. Point being is that how come these wigs, these new wigs now, don't say made in India? It's because there's a transition process. First they get them, they source them from India. Then most of the time they go to China for processing. So immediately it changes from made in India to made in China. But there's also a lot of uh, idol worship in China that do it. So how come it doesn't say made in China? That would be bad, right? Ah, it doesn't stop in China. 
the next level of processing that increases the price from five dollars to two, three, four, five thousand dollars is it goes to Europe. It goes to England, it goes to France, it goes to Italy, different major uh, people that are running that business, running that industry. And now the stamp turns from made in India or made in China to made in France, made in Italy, made in uh, England. And people believe, or they convince themselves to believe, that these wigs actually came from France, or they came from Italy. Somebody that shaved their head in Italy, not fine, they'll worship them for money. Now the question I asked during one of the lectures is, when was the last time you saw an Italian woman shave her head? When was the last time you saw a French woman walking around bald because she just donated her hair or sold it? These people value their beauty more than they value their, their, their life. That's not what they do. It's not part of their life. And there's actual proven market research that we've done. There's even videos about it that other people have done uh, that, we're, that we're piggybacking off of. It shows that there, it's virtually impossible to get a wig that does not come from idol worship. Impossible, if it's real hair. Obviously, if it's, a, uh, if it's synthetic, then you would think it's also okay. Problem is, it's not okay. And the reason why is because even the synthetics, many, of the t- many times, have some level of hair. Have some level of real hair in them, many times. And that hair comes from idol worship. Even if there's one hair, one hair, that's part of idol worship, you're not allowed to benefit out of it. We learn this from when Am Yisrael came into Eretz Yisrael. Yeshua Benun, Joshua, came into Eretz Yisrael. Finally, we got the land that Hashem promised our forefathers. First thing Hashem tells them, burn all of the Asher trees. Burn them, why? What do they do, these poor trees? Burn all of these trees. I don't want to have even a recollection of them. You can't use them for fire to, to warm yourself up. You can't use them to build anything. You have to destroy them from the face of the world. You can't build houses. You can't build desks. You can't donate them. You can't do anything with them. Why? Because they were used for idol worship. And even if it was one crazy guy from the Ammonite nation, from the, uh, any of these other nations, that, the seven nations that live there, came there, worshipped the tree one time. Not every day. He didn't make it a... Uh, Everyday thing. He didn't do shachit, arvit, mincha. He didn't do that. Once he came there, worshipped the tree. You're never allowed to benefit out of it. Anything that was ever used for idol worship, you're not allowed to sell. You're not allowed to benefit in any way, shape, or form. So even if there's one hair that comes from illegal, from from uh, idol worship in a uh, synthetic wig, you have a problem. You have a serious problem. Not all of them have real hair, but many of them do. And even the ones that don't, you still have an issue of immodesty. But nonetheless, the, the point is, is that this is a tikkun for all of the frum world today. Because uh, as you see from one of the uh, videos that Rav Yashiv, Zechat Tzadik V'Kadosh Libacha, was recorded, saying, he says that even Tzadikim Gdolim fell for this. It wasn't that Rishayim started it and that's the ones that fell. He says even people that were actually real frum, real Tzadikim, real Yirat Shamayim, they fell. They fell for this test. And that's why today, pretty much almost every rabbanit, every rebbitzin has a wig on. So what's the answer? What's the, the answer is you have to give people the truth. Because we've gotten used to the lie, to the point where we think it's okay. To the point where we think it's true. So most women that are wearing wigs are wearing it because they think they're doing a mitzvah. 
They're not doing it. They're not wearing a wig because they're looking to, you know, a uh, upset Hashem. No one wants to upset Hashem. So they're wearing a wig because they want to cover their hair because they think it's a mitzvah. The problem is that they're just like the Kuzari. The Kuzari is a very famous book. You should read it if you haven't. It's a originally was a goy king that had a dream that Hashem sent him an angel, and the angel told him, Hashem is very happy with your intentions, but you're doing it the wrong way. Why his intentions were to worship Hashem, but he's doing it through idol worship. And eventually what he does is that he brings a Christian, a Muslim, and a Jew, each to prove their religion. And eventually he, the, the Jew wins, obviously. The Jew wins the argument, wins the debate. It's a whole book. I think maybe written about uh, written maybe about 800 years ago by Rabbi Yehuda Levi. And uh, very famous argument, very famous debate, beautiful book. A lot of questions that you guys never even thought of are being answered in this book. It's uh, highly recommended for any Baal Tshuva or any, uh, any convert. Usually the uh, Bedins require you to read the Kuzari book because it gives a lot of proofs of the Torah versus the other religions, which is necessary for conversion. Uh, so nonetheless, what happens is that eventually the Kuzari uh, ends up not only converting himself, but he converts his entire kingdom, all of his people. And the, uh, today they ask, who's the Kuzaris? Who are they? And uh, we don't know for sure, but they, uh, uh, many believe it's the Guzini, Georgia. the Georgians. And the reason why they believe it's the Georgians is because they don't have any Kohanim. And uh, if, you're, if you're a convert, you can't be a Kohen. So that's the, that's the one thing that leads many people to believe that the Georgians are actually uh, the Kuzaris and they're warriors. So the point is, is that many women are wearing these wigs that are trying to fulfill a mitzvah. Some are doing it because they like it. But the point is, is that they, many are doing it for a mitzvah. They're not trying to upset Hashem. They still pray to Hashem. They're eating him every day. They try to dress modestly. They try to fulfill a mitzvah. And they're wearing this thing. Why are they wearing this? Because there's no knowledge. No one is willing to talk about it. There may be a couple of rabbis in the English-speaking world that are willing to talk about it. Most people, when I say these things, it's a chidush to them. Including from people. No one's willing to talk about it. And, uh, and the big reason is because many of the people that, even the ones that have the knowledge, even the ones that have the knowledge don't talk about it because they themselves are failing for this. Their own wife is wearing a wig. So how are you going to tell people, listen, you're not allowed to wear a wig when your own wife is wearing a wig? So you have to be a real ishemet. And Rav Vadya Zechet Sadiq, one of the people came to him and said, listen, for the love, he spoke very highly against wigs. For the love, how is it that you're speaking so highly against Wigs when one of your uh, granddaughters, I believe it was, wears a wig. And his answer was, as the Isha met that he was, there's room in Ganom for her too. Is there something we can help them with, like substitute the hair with? Like, yes, you hair. substitute the hair with either a hat or with a scarf. You cover the hair with a hat or scarf. The point of the wig originally when the few people, the few poskim that did allow it, which is a machloket of whether it was even ever allowed to begin with, but let's say you rely on the ones that did allow it. The ones that allowed it, allowed it based on the precedence that it doesn't look like real hair, meaning that it would be obvious for anyone, not just women, for anyone to know that it's not real hair. Now, the original wigs look like straw. So it was obvious, even uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the broom and the hair, the fake hair looked the same. 
So it was obvious it was a wig. And they only did it because there was a lot of, you know, racism and anti-Semitism and, you know, that uh, anytime you would wear the, uh, the mitpachat, the, uh, the, the scar- headscarf, it would cause a lot of problems. So if you wore the, uh, the you know, the, the straw in your head, it caused less anguish. And it worked for them. So they said, okay, so this is allowed. The problem is that we get weaker and weaker and weaker. In today's uh, wig, you can't tell that it's not real hair. And even the few people that maybe can tell, they're women. You're not trying to, that's the point. It's not, it's not to prove to women that it's not real hair. It's to prove to men that it's not real hair. And one of the biggest reasons is because when a woman shows her hair, one of the biggest things that it shows is that she's not married. When a woman covers her hair, that's number one indication that she's married. So when a woman shows her hair, that shows that she's not married. So when you have many rabbit sins, many frum women walking around in the weddings, and they show their hair, or it looks like their real hair, everyone thinks that they're single. And that's why many times when people are going to weddings and they're trying to find a shiduch, they're trying to find somebody, they usually go for someone that's already married. Because they don't know that it's not real hair. Now, I've looked, you know, Baruch Hashem, you go to different shulim, I've, I've, I've seen some women that wear wigs, I can't tell. Not to say that I'm some expert, but I can't tell the difference between a wig and a, uh, and, uh, and of today and um, real hair. I can't tell the difference. My wife, she says, most of the time she can tell, but only if she gets a really close-up look. Like really, really close-up look. Who's going? What are you going to start? Hey, listen. Let me look at the hairline over here. We start dissecting. No, it's supposed. It's supposed to look fake from afar. So that's the problem, and that's that's the and and one of the main reasons that we fell for this is because we got weaker and weaker, and eventually we stopped talking about it. Eventually, we started accepting it, and little by little, we've become comfortably numb to this sin to such an extent that we are at a level where many people in the Frum world believe it's actually a mitzvah. And that's why they wear it. Most women that wear wigs wear it because they believe it's a mitzvah to wear a wig. And if you fight them about it, you tell them, listen, it's not, many will not take it. Maybe many will not listen to you. But the biggest ones that fight against it are men. Isn't it a mitzvah for women, from what I, from what I learned from before, is that, that a man is not allowed to look at... Even one piece of work, yeah. No, that's Zohar. Zohar says, the Zohar Kadosh says that you shouldn't even show a single hair. But Alakha says that you're allowed to show up to three fingerfuls. You're allowed to show, you're allowed to show up to three fingerfuls. Real hair. Real hair, up to three. That's why you see, like for example, you see Ravavadya, his wife, used to show hair up to here. Usually you see women that wear kisuyosh, many of them show just the beginning. Just the beginning. Now, the, uh, that's the Alakha, which is what we go by. We don't go by the Zohar. But the Hasidish world, they go by the Zohar, and they say, listen, the wig is better because the wig covers all of the hair. Now, even though it's better to cover the entire hair than to show anything, for obvious reasons, it's better to, the less you show, the better. But you're, fo- you're still following Alakha if you show two fingerfuls or three fingerfuls. You're still following Alakha. There's nothing wrong with it. But to say that it's better... To cover it with a wig, yes, you're covering the problem of showing any hair on one end, but you're creating a new, bigger problem, which is a problem of immodesty. Because now your wife looks like she's a not married woman. 
And one question that I asked in one of the shiurim that was very effective, I heard it originally from Rab Nisim Yagen, Zechet Tzadik V'Gadosh Livacha, who may have heard it himself from someone else, maybe it was Rav Shach, who also said it in a, in a, in a drasha that I heard. Um, out of all the women, the holy women that are mentioned in the Torah, Sarai Menu, Rivka, whether you have a, uh, a um, Leah, you have Rachel, you have a, uh, so many amazing uh, women, Ruth, the Moabites, the, the mother of the, uh, grandmother of the Mashiach. You listen to all these wonderful, amazing women. Each time they're described, first thing it's mentioned is modesty. First thing is mentioned in Rivka, modesty. Sarah, modest, beautiful, modest. Constantly talks about modesty. But there's one woman, there's one woman in the entire Torah that's mentioned for uncovering her hair, for showing her hair. One. Who is she? The Sota. The wayward woman that's accused of cheating on her husband. The Sota. Sota in Parashat Naso. Parashat Naso, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, they tell about a, if a woman is accused of cheating on her husband. And the way that she's accused is that she put herself, she violated the, the laws of Yehud. She violated the laws of being alone with a, a man that's not her husband in an enclosed area. So a man and a woman are allowed to be sitting, let's say, next to each other. Let's say, if I don't know, they sit at a cafe. As long as there's other people there, if they're conducting business or, you know, it's for, for real reasons, not because they're flirting if, if he's not a husband. But if they're, let's say, conducting business or there's actual reason for this meeting, it's allowed. As long as there's people there and even if it's a closed area, as long as people can enter this room without knocking, without anything, they can enter freely, like it's a public area, you're allowed. But if it's locked... If someone has to knock, if there has to be some, something has to take place before you enter, meaning there's some type of barrier to entry, and there's a man and a woman that's, uh, 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 that's uh, they're not married in a room, they're violating the laws of Yehud. So if this woman is married, first she gets a warning. Now let's do this. If she violates it again, then the uh, you have to find out if she cheated on him. You have to obviously after there's witnesses that she's continuously doing this. The, man, the husband brings her to the Bet HaMikdash. He brings her to the Bet HaMikdash, and the Bet HaMikdash, they didn't need a uh, private detective. They have God. But, unfortunately, when God is not a, uh, you know, God is not like us, where we have a, uh, um, you know, weaknesses. God is perfect. So, in essence, Hashem, He gives us a lot of time, a lot of patience, but when He acts, It's definitive. Us, we may have patience, we may not have patience. But when we act, sometimes we take it back. Like we start something or we stop. So in essence, what this means is that Hashem said you have this holy water. This water that the Kohanim wash their hands and their feet. Take this water. Also take a scroll with my name on it. Dip the scroll with my name on it into the water, which would erase my name, which is not allowed. But for this specific thing, it's allowed because this is either going to create Shlom Bayit or it's going to create truth. It's going to expose the truth. One way or another, it's going to expose the truth which is necessary. So to create Shlom Bayit, Hashem is willing to erase His name. Point being is that once you did this, you give it to the woman. She drinks it. If she cheated, she dies on the spot. Her stomach expands and blows up and she dies on the spot. 
if she didn't cheat, then she lives and the Kohen Gadol gives her a blessing that all of our children will be beautiful and smart and Gadol Ador and so on and all that gets fulfilled. Now also, as a footnote, if the husband is also cheating, the woman cheated and the husband cheated, she doesn't die. It doesn't work. Why? Because Hashem is not going to punish her for something that her husband is also doing. But before they get to this, because this is final, this is a final step. There's no like, she drank the water, she goes, no, 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 I want to confess. No, once you drank the water, that's it, it's over. So before they get her to drink the water, they try to intimidate her as much as possible to get her to admit that she cheated. Because if she cheated, and she admits it without, you know, before drinking the water, they, you know, she gets a divorce, but they don't kill her. She's just not allowed to be with a husband, she's not allowed to be with this other man, but she's let go, she lives. She starts out tshuva. But once she lies on cheating at home, she lies cheating at the Beit HaMikdash, then they, she drinks the water, she dies. So the, uh, what they do, they do a few different things. One of the things they do, they tire her out, where they make her walk around the entire Beit HaMikdash, to get her tired, to get her frustrated. They you know, try to intimidate her with talking to her. And the last step, the last thing that they do, the last two things, one thing is that they rip her shirt, which would express her bosom. Uh, this Rabbi Uda stopped doing. They decreed that stop doing it just in case he saw that the generations are getting weaker, even in his days, a couple of thousand years ago. And he says that instead of people seeing this as an embarrassment, maybe husbands are going to get turned on. So they stopped doing this part. So then they got straight to the last act. What was the last act? The last act is supposed to be the most embarrassing act, which is uncovering her hair. They take the kisur uh, the, the scarf she has on her head, and they uncover her hair and show her hair to the world. Meaning that even if this woman was a putza, was a prostitute, was a worst person on earth, she still would know enough to be, to cover her hair. To that extent, meaning that even to show her bosom is considered less than showing her hair. And this is the only woman in the entire Torah that's mentioned that she showed her hair. But she, by force. No woman showed her hair intentionally. So this is one of the things that a, uh, um, people don't understand. You want to pray and you want to get the schuyot of Rivka. You want to get the schuyot of Rachel Imenu. You want to get the schuyot of Yochevet. You want to get the You want to pray to all these righteous, amazing women. So why are you acting like the Sota? Why do you want to look at the Sota? Why do you want to wear a wig that makes you look like the sota? Because the sota had her hair uncovered. And this, in one of my lectures in New York, one of the women that wore a wig at the end of the lecture at Malasha touched her heart. She said, right after the lecture, she goes, I'm taking off, I never knew this, taking off my wig today and putting kisulosh. She goes, listen, I don't know, now I thought it was a mitzvah. Never thought about it this way. And that's one of the things I think that we have, one of the biggest problems we have in our generation is either lack of knowledge or misinformation. Lack of knowledge you can easily cure. Just educate the person. Misinformation takes a lot longer. So for example, I have a couple of students, Baruch Hashem, that we helped them convert. And they came from nothing. They had no religion. Within a matter of a short period of time, Baruch Hashem, they learned Torah, they learned the mitzvot, converted one, two, three, no, no problem. On the other hand, I have a group of students that for almost two years I'm teaching them finally Baruch Hashem they're ready to convert 
Why did it take them two years and other people takes less? One of the reasons is because all of them did a conversion. All of them did a conversion many years ago, conservative. They all converted to Judaism, but they converted conservative. So it took me two years to undo what the conservatives did. Because everything they knew was misinformation. They were taught they were allowed to drive on Shabbat as long as they're driving to Beknesset. They were taught they could eat wherever they want because those laws don't apply. They were taught that modesty is not really, uh, you know, it's, it's all relative to where you are. Meaning, if you're in a place where everyone's modest, you can act modest. If you're in a place that people are not modest, you don't have to be modest. All types of things that are unless outright against the Torah. So this misinformation is a bigger disease than anything else. So it takes longer. But nonetheless, you know, if with someone that really wants to see the truth, we'll see it. We'll eventually get there. Yeah. And so what was this lady Sotot's... Uh, the Sotah? Yeah, Sotah, what was her um, end? And uh, what's so special about the hair? I mean, there's more other attracting parts right. of the women's than right. the hair. So, so the Sotah is just, it wasn't an actual name. It was named for, it's, it means wayward woman. It means a woman that's accused of cheating on her husband. Um, and in that particular story, she died. In the Torah, in Parashat, so this is actually one of the Parashat in the Torah, uh, she actually died. And uh, But there was others throughout history that didn't die, some that did die, and some cheat, tried to cheat the system. There's one story of one uh, twin sisters, and one of them actually did cheat on her husband. And she said, listen, if I go and I drink the water, I'm going to die. If I tell them, they're going to release me, but my husband's going to kill me. So why don't you go for me? And they can't tell the difference between us. We look exactly alike. So that's what they did. The woman went. She drank. The sister went. She drank. Nothing happened. She comes home to give her sister the good news. She sees her sister dead on the floor. Why? Because Hashem sees over there and over here too. He's not at the Betamidash. He makes you think he's only in the Betamidash. He's everywhere. You can cheat the rabbis. You can cheat the Kohanim. You can't cheat Hashem. Hashem didn't need the water to punish her. This was just something to make it look realistic. Now the Gemara says in, Mas- in Masechet Sotah, there's a tractate called Sotah, in the Gemara, part of the Shas, and it says, Kol erva. The voice of a woman is considered nakedness. But it also says, the hair of a woman is also considered nakedness. Meaning that there are certain parts of a woman that are their beauty. That if they have that part, it's 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 mamash the, the beauty of the woman. Now, of course, you know when us and our crazy minds think today we're thinking, listen, the beauty is what she looks like naked. In reality, in reality, most people don't see the other person naked, and even the ones, even the man, a husband and a uh, and a wife, if they're following the uh, basic kosher laws of how to be together, usually don't see each other completely naked with the uh, sunlight in the background. It's, it's dark. And one of the reasons, by the way, uh, the halacha is to have it as a dark place, not necessarily supposed to be pitch dark, but it should be as dark as possible, is in case one of the people have something that's disgusting to the other on their body. Because... With all due respect to everyone's beauty and so on, the reality of it is that uh, you know most people are not exactly as beautiful as they think they are or they would like to be. People have different things on their body that are not exactly they're not exactly proud of themselves. So, 
the, in order to protect the marriage, in order to protect the, the, the love of a marriage, and to protect the longevity of the marriage, the Chazal, and in the Rambam, in Alachot, of, uh, uh, in, his, in his book, he wrote that you um, have to be in a darker place, and the reason why is because uh, there may be something disgusting on one of the people's bodies that you know, would cause them not to want to be together anymore. Uh, it could be a pimple, it could be a hair, it could be a beauty mark, it could be a wart, it could be whatever, it could be a scratch, it could be a scar. You know, there's a million and a half things that could be on somebody's body where some people have this crazy mindset. And, you know, I, I remember in my sinful days, I had a friend who uh, said that he broke up with a long relationship because he couldn't stand the fact that his, uh, I think it was his wife or his wife-to-be, she had ugly toes. So he actually broke up a whole, you know, unity, a future, and an eternity, and because of toes. This is craziness of today. So Chazal already knew about the craziness of today, so they made these laws. So the things that are exposed to the public are the hair, are the voice, are the you know facial features, and there are certain parts of a person that are that accentuate their beauty. If a woman has long, beautiful hair, or her hair is done in a certain way, then automatically she's going to look a lot better than if she was bald. Just our natural human inclination is going to find her much prettier than someone that has a bad hair day or no hair at all. So the hair of a woman accentuates her beauty. And that's what the Gemara is saying. So if you're going to, if the woman is going to act as if she's free and hang out with any man that she wants, then we're going to let everybody know that you're single by uncovering your hair. But you're not single, really. And you know that I know that you're not single. So it's embarrassing her. So even the, uh, even the woman that was a wayward woman would still know enough not to embarrass herself by showing her hair. Same concept with in regards to a lot of people have a hard time understanding why a, a kosher Jew, is a, a male, is not allowed to listen to a woman sing um, if he knows what she looks like. Even if she doesn't know what he, even if he doesn't know what she looks like, he shouldn't. But the halacha is specifically where if he knows what she looks like, he's not allowed to listen to her sing. And the reason why is because when a man listens to a woman sing, his natural evil inclination makes makes him think of her naked. This, by default, most of us thinking, what what are you talking about? It works. I'm telling you, it is. This is I, I fought these things tooth and nail before I did chuba. Every single thing that they told me, all oh, the hair, the uh, the uh, the voice, everything, everything that I'm telling you guys, I fought everything tooth and nail. I was the worst bal chuba in the world. I tortured my rabbis, tortured them. Like nah, this doesn't make any sense. What did you make? Show me proof. And I'd start thinking about it after I tortured them. I started thinking, I'm like, you know what? That actually makes sense. It's really true. But immediately, my evil inclination was so big, I would immediately fight everything. Kosher, why do you care if I eat kosher? Hashem really cares if I eat kosher? Why does he care? Wait, salad, I eat salad? Why does he care if I eat salad at uh, McDonald's or I eat salad at the house? Why does he care? And he's like, oh, listen, you know, every time you eat a bug, it's like eating pig six times. So most people, no, I keep kosher. I used to think I kept kosher. Even as a, as a chiloni, even as a secular person, I believed that I was keeping kosher my whole life because I never ate meat outside. With the exception of a break of, let's say, like a year of my life, I never ate meat outside. Never ate pork, never ate milk and meat, never ate meat outside, period, because, I don't know, I was brought up with a secher to think that, you know, meat outside of the house that's a, uh, not kosher, not allowed to eat. 
So I thought I could eat pizza outside anywhere because it's cheese. I could eat salad anywhere because it's salad. I could eat uh, fish, even though I don't really like fish, anywhere because it's fish. I could eat pasta. Pasta is the best. Anywhere. Little do I know that each one of these things could potentially be even worse than eating pig. Your salad, the goyim, don't have to wash the salad like the Jews do. Which means anyone that's ever made salad, anyone that's ever bought from a supermarket fresh salad, you go through the salad, you wash it, you find bugs, flies, spiders, uh, whatever, all types of uh, worms, all types of things. There are certain things right now that you can't even eat because you can't kosherize them anymore, unfortunately. Like, for example, strawberries and in general all berries, real fruit people don't eat anymore. You can't find ones without bugs on them. And you can't clean them because the bugs look exactly like the seed. Must they look exactly identical. You can't tell the difference until it moves. Until it moves, you cannot listen. You, I, I, don't eat, I don't eat berries of any kind anymore. And there's certain things you just can't eat. Uh, in the old days, it wasn't like this, but unfortunately, our sins created this rotten world that we live in right now from our own sins. Go ahead. How does that have an OU on it then? Like strawberries? Yeah, some frozen strawberries have an OU on it. The, the, the frozen strawberries, because they figure that by, you know, if they're frozen, then it kills everything that's on it. But if it's, a, if it's fresh on, uh, from, the, from the supermarket, it doesn't have an OU on it. It's like frozen eggs. Right. Like frozen, it kills everything. That's at least that's the only thing I could say for the uh, for the in, in the OU's uh, benefit for why they would give for something like that because in essence if you freeze everything nothing can survive. Um, but what if you make a smoothie and you pour it from a frozen bag right into a blender and you never know? Again, it's a if you're making it yourself, you have a lot more a uh, control. If you're gonna use frozen um, strawberries, then if it has OU on it, then you can rely on it. There's no problem. You can rely on it. If those are a mashkiach, a real mashkiach, a real ashgaha, you can rely on it. I'm not telling you to go against the ashgaha. But to go buy strawberries at the local supermarket, the regular strawberries or berries or some other specific fruits that are pretty much infested with bugs these days. Um, there's another one. There's a, um, what is it called? Teina. Teina. What is it? Teina in, uh, in English. Uh, not fig. Is it fig? Not fig. It's one of these other fruits. Um... It's actually good, according to uh, the Rambam, it's actually good for hemorrhoids, believe it or not. I figure, I think it's ten, I think it's fig, but anyway, I think it's fig. Uh, you can't, you can't eat it because you open it, it's infested with worms. Infested, it's, it's you, you cannot find one. One, with, obviously you have to look, they're not like worms, like it's like you have an uh, anaconda coming out of the uh, thing. But you look at it and there's worms in them. So there's certain things you just can't eat anymore. Um, so if you have control... You have obviously something with OU on it. You make the uh, shake yourself, then yeah, go ahead. You can find. But in general, it's a um, if you could do it in another way, do it another way. But if you use a different fruit to you know to, to create a flavor for yourself to make it delicious, find a kosher fruit. And one of the main reasons why is because every single one of you have a, has a good neshama, and every single one of you is here because you want to improve your neshama, which means you're learning Torah. And one of the dangers of non-kosher food is that it ruins your neshama. And it specifically ruins your learning of Torah. Venitmetim. In, in the Torah it says, when we eat non-kosher, it makes us tmeim, makes us impure. So Chazal says, no, no, no nitmetim, venitamtim. It makes them stupid. What's stupid? 
spiritually stupid. Meaning, not stupid, you can, you can still build a building, you can still be the greatest stock trader in history, you could be uh, whatever, doctor, lawyer, you could, genius. But as far as spiritually, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to accept Yivret Torah. Why? Because your neshama is stupid when you eat non-kosher food. So each one of you is here at 10, 11 o'clock, whatever time it is right now. Obviously you're here because you're trying to improve your neshama. So these little things could, you know, could, uh, could hurt you. What do you, you really need to eat a strawberry? You really need to eat one of these berries. There's, you know, they're, they're delicious, but there's something else that's delicious also. Shabbat Hashem. Hashem created many, many delicious things. Yeah, you have a question? Um, what if you eat like non-kosher on the day? Shogeg? If it's shogeg, then obviously it's, just, it's, it's not the same level of sin, but it's nonetheless, it's still a sin. It's just a lower level of sin. And the, uh, the reason why it's still considered a sin is because the, the root of it is Yirat Shemaim. If you had enough Yirat Shemaim, if I had enough Yirat Shemaim, we would investigate every single thing before it comes to our into our body. So, it's still some level of sin, but sin, but it's not to the same level. It's Shogeg. Anything else? Okay, so we'll continue. So, the, uh, the root of the problem that we have, you know, we have many, many, you have three major cancers in today's world. You have political correctness, which Hashem Yerachem is like the worst possible cancer that I think ever hit the land. It's people that are, in essence, Deciding for you what you can handle. They decide for you whether you can handle the truth or not before they even know anything about you. Now, obviously, if you're a father and you have kids, you know what your kids can handle or not because number one, their age. So you use a little bit of, you know, a little bit of well, wisdom that you have. So you know, five-year-old kid can handle certain things, can't handle certain things. Aside from that, you know the kid. If your kid's a little scaredy cat, he can't handle certain things. If your kid's an adventurer, he can handle certain things. You know your kid. That's a father. That's a mother. Problem is, we're not talking about our parents. We're talking about rabbis. We're talking about politicians. We're talking about teachers. We're talking about the world around us decided that there are certain things that only they can handle. So it's like the doctor knows you have cancer, but he doesn't want to tell you because he thinks you're going to you know, really get depressed over it. Yeah, but if I, don't, I I better be depressed and start taking medicine than not be depressed and live a lie and die. So the problem is that you have this political correctness of these leaders that decide for us what we can and we can't handle. This is a major, major root of all problems because this is the reason for all of the misinformation in Yiddishkeit today. This is the reason for all of the misinformation in Torah Judaism today. This is the foundation of reform and conservative Judaism. This is the foundation of uh, modern Orthodox that is slowly but surely becoming weaker and weaker, unfortunately. It's the root of the problem. Because when our leader is deciding for the student what he can't and he can't handle, if it's based on knowledge, fine, I agree with you. There's certain things you shouldn't tell everybody. This is the reason why many of my students that ask me to make a shiur about Gehenom, I still haven't made one. Not because I'm scared to talk about Gehenom, but because I know that most people can't handle it. Most people can't handle the real details about Gehenom. So one of them says, no, no, I can handle it. I can handle it. I thought, okay, you know what, I'll give you, I can. listen, just because you said you can handle it doesn't mean that you can really handle it. It's okay, if you want to test yourself, of whether you can really handle a shiur about Gehenom, with the details. I'm not talking about like, oh, you know, you make this and you go to Gehenom. Talk about like the details of what happens in Gehenom. 
which you find in the book Rishit Chokhmah and also the few other places, but mainly the big source is Rishit Chokhmah. You really want to learn about Gainal. There's certain people that love to get scared. It's like, uh, you know, like people like scary movies. They like to get scared. I was one of them as far as people that like to get scared. Never really liked scary movies, but I like to get scared. I like the strong stuff in Judaism. But once I started really learning about the details of Gainal, I wasn't really sure if it was the right thing or not. But now I know it already. So what's the test? Test is, go watch a film. Go watch a film. I could send it to you if you want. That talks and shows pictures of abortions. Go watch it. Five minutes, ten minutes. If you can watch it without having nightmares and vomiting, I'll teach you about Gainal. Nobody can watch it. Even the thought, right now you got disgusted and all of you guys are like, you know, like, wondering whether you should have come to the shul b'chlal. And that is the best case scenario. That abortion is the best case scenario of what happens to a person that makes sins and goes to gain all. It's the best case scenario. That's like Gan Eden for him. You know what they do to Mechalel Shabbat? You guys even have an idea of what they do for Mechalel Shabbat? I was going to go over some of this stuff today about Shabbat. But Hashem wanted me to go in a different direction apparently. But... One of the things they do, the Gemara says, they do to Mechalel Shabbat. Someone drives on Shabbat. Someone plays on the phone on Shabbat. Someone is Mechalel Shabbat. They feed them Gechalim. They feed them coals that are called Ratim, which is coals that never extinguish. It's like lava that never ever goes out. That's what they feed them, non-stop. Mechalel Shabbat. This is just one small, tiny little fact of Gehenom. Tiny little fact. Imagine how much worse it gets. So, people want to know a lot of these things, but it's not, we're not, we don't necessarily, we're not all at the level that we need to know these things. Just knowing a little bit is good because it gets us scared enough to have some irat So this political correctness destroys us. Why? Because this political correctness is anti-Musar. Political correctness is anti-truth. Political correctness is anti-Ganom. It's anti-truth, in essence. It's pretty much selective truth. They decide what is truth, what's not. They decide what you should know and what's not, even if the truth is what you need to hear. That's one of the things. The second thing is misinformation. As we talked about earlier, having misinformation, having just thinking about certain things and just having just the wrong information and thinking it's right. This is a really big problem. Like, for example, one of the uh, people that did Shior recently talking about the whole issue that happened in in Boca Raton with the missionary that was supposed to go there, and one of the people that was fighting against it, was trying to actually support this missionary coming there, made a shiur saying that in the uh, Gemara, it says that uh, the, all the minim, the people that are idol worshippers that, that, that are talked about, uh, called minim in the Gemara, they're all Jews. They're all Jews. And this is wrong. The minim are both Jews and non-Jews. What was the problem? What was this misinformation? What was this problem? Is that he only read the first line of the Gemara. If he would have read the rest of the Gemara, even the next line, the next line was the full information. Problem is that now he made a video with just this one line. So everyone thinks that, listen, the guy you know, knows Torah, he's a rabbi, he's not getting paid for this, so it sounds like it's good. But the problem is now he has a bunch of misinformation disseminated to thousands and thousands of people because it only has part of the information. This is a problem. So, misinformation is the second problem. 
The third big problem, which is a problem both in the Frum world and in the um, non-Frum world, but a bigger problem in the Frum world, is exactly what this Mishnah is talking about, which is getting used to things, making things routine. When you make things routine, you become a robot. If Hashem wanted robots, you wouldn't create man. You would just leave angels and that's it. Angels are in essence a robot. They're a spiritual robot. They do exactly what Hashem does. If they don't, Hashem punishes them and destroys them on the spot. So they have free choice, but not really. They have free choice, but if they use their free choice, it's against the will of Hashem, they get destroyed instantly. We, on the other hand, Hashem has, as it says in his Gemara, slow to anger, abounding of kindness, relentful in punishment, where even if He punishes us, He's merciful. So even going back to the original thing that started this question, which is the idol worship of the Mount Sinai, what happened? The Cheta Egil, the uh, golden calf. Hashem said, yes, I'm not going to destroy them. Because Moshe said, listen, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me first. Because Hashem said to Moshe, listen, let me destroy them and start a whole new nation from you, a better nation. You'll still live, you're a tzaddik. I'll start something better from you. Moshe says, no, not only don't start anything for me, but actually erase me first. Because I don't want to go up to Shemaim, to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and say, oh, you're the leader. You're, you're that guy that destroyed all of our descendants. You're the guy. He's like, I'll be embarrassed. And being in front of my forefathers, I'm the guy that killed all of their, that got all of their grandkids killed. Who wants to be that? He goes, erase me first. Erase me from the Torah, erase that I ever existed. I said, okay, okay, fine. I'll listen to you, Moshe. I love Moshe. So he listened to Moshe. But the point is that Hashem still had to punish us. But the punishment, even after the mercy, even after the forgiveness, is still so big for the golden calf that Chazal tells us that until this day, till today, over 3,000 years later, Every single time Am Yisrael suffers, any suffering, whether it's Chash Shalom, the Holocaust, the pogroms, the Inquisitions, anything, anti-Semitism, BDS, anything, any time Am Yisrael suffers, part of the reason they're suffering is as a repentance for the golden calf. That's how big the sin is. And that's how big the punishment was, because Hashem said, if I give them the punishment... In one shot, there's no way for them to survive. So I have to give them a little bit at a time for until the end of times. Until the end of times. So, even his being slow to anger and being relentful in his punishment, we see how that works. And it says, do not judge yourself to be a wicked person. That's the last part of the Mishnah. So let's, let's go into details, unless you guys have any questions, we'll go into some of the details of this of this Mishnah. Any questions? Somebody raise their hand. I, I, I learned some God was actually pleased with Moses. It's, uh, yeah, God. Moses was the closest person to Hashem in history. That God didn't really want to extinguish the Jews. Right, exactly. And so that's the the difference between Moses and uh, and, for example, Noah. Is that Noah was also given the news that Hashem wanted to destroy the world, but Noah didn't fight for people. Noah heard what Hashem said. He started building the. Uh, the ark like Hashem requested but he didn't go anytime somebody came to him asked him listen what are you doing started making fun of him he says listen Hashem is going to destroy the world anybody came to him he'd tell him 
but he didn't go out there and start doing Kiruv. So that's why they call the flood, the flood of Noah. Even though Noah was a tzaddik, tzaddik tamim it says, they call the, they call the flood after his name, meaning they're giving him part of the fault. He knew the truth, he knew what was happening, but he didn't try to fight for anybody. Avraham Avinu, on the other hand, when Hashem came to him and says, listen, I want to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Avraham Avinu says, yeah, but what if there's 50 tzaddikim? Okay, if there's 50 tzaddikim, I want to destroy it. What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? He kept fighting for them, you know, to see if maybe Hashem can save them. Hashem said, even if there's 10, 10 tzaddikim in all of Sodom, I won't destroy it. Unfortunately, there wasn't. So he fought for them. Moshe Rabbeinu went even further. He didn't give an argument of if there's tzaddikim, save them. Moshe Rabbeinu says, listen, you destroy them, I'm not going to go against you. You want to destroy them, destroy them. But destroy me first, I don't want to witness it. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to benefit out of it. I don't want to start. I want to be destroyed. I want to be destroyed. It's causing me such anguish. I love them. So they're part of me now. I can't. It's like saying, listen, you know, it's either you or your son. What do you mean it's either you or my son? Kill me first. Who wants to live without their son? In a sense, so it's the same concept. So Moshe Rabbeinu, we don't even know how significant Moshe Rabbeinu was. But that's the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu was the only one that ever spoke to Hashem face to face, was the only one that Hashem himself buried him. Now, Rabbi Shimon is telling us a few things that take everything we've talked about until now and throw it, put it upside down. Also, very, but he says very, very simple things. Things that all of us know, really not a chidush, things that are common sense. First he says, Be very meticulous in reading the Shema. What's the big deal? The big deal is, the big deal is, that even though all of us know this, we should really be careful. We Not only Kriyat Shema, anything. You read Kriyat Shema, you should be careful. You read anything, it's the words of God. You should be careful. Right? The problem is, if we really were careful, if we really were careful in reading Kriyat Shema, we'd actually understand what it means. If we understood what it says in Kriyat Shema, we would never dare to be politically correct. We would never dare to spread misinformation. We would never dare getting used to anything because every time, if you actually understand what it says in Kriyat Shema, you get scared every time, all new. Now everyone remembers the first few lines, Ve'aftet Hashem Elokecha, B'kol Levavecha, B'kol Nafshecha, you loved Hashem with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your money. So everyone knows this first line. After you say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. After you say, Hero uh, Israel Hashem, our God, Hashem is one. After that, you go into the Shema Yisrael, which you're supposed to do a couple times a day at least. So everyone knows the famous story about Rabbi Akiva from Gemara Masechet Brachot, where they were to- the Romans, the evil Romans were torturing Rabbi Akiva, peeling his skin like it's an uh, orange, Shem Rachem, and he says, Shema Yisrael, No crying, no 
complaining. No, show me proof that God exists. None of that garbage. He is happy with what's happening. And when he's questioned, Rebbe, why don't you just say the real name of Hashem? You can kill all of them. You're such a holy person. Why are you suffering through this? He says, my whole life, I've been 80 years now, Baal Tshuva. He did Tshuva when he was 40 years old. He's now 120 years old. 80 years, Baal Tshuva. 80 years, became the biggest rabbi in history. Has 24,000 students where the least of his student can revive the dead. The least. Lowest level student. Says, all my life, I tried to fulfill Shema Yisrael. Let's say I tried to fulfill the entire Torah. He says, try to fulfill Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. You understood what it says, Shema Yisrael. What did you try to fulfill? V'avtet Hashem b'kolevavecha. Love Hashem with all your heart. What does it mean? Study Torah non-stop. Hashem is number one. I tried doing that. As soon as I found out who Hashem was, I tried doing that. Bekom nafshecha. I exerted my effort to such an extent that I sacrificed my life, my soul, my everything for Hashem. I separated from my wife for 24 years. It was her will for me to separate from her for 24 years. But to fulfill the will of Hashem, my soul went into it. There was one thing I couldn't do. Oh, because Maodecha, he did with all of his money. But I'm sorry, the Nafshecha, the all of his soul, the Levecha he was able to fulfill, the Nafshecha he wasn't able to fulfill. The uh, Levecha was all of his will, he separated from his wife, but Nafshecha, the, uh, the soul he wasn't able to fulfill, because he says, listen, because even though I put all my heart, all my everything into it, I separated from my wife, I couldn't fulfill with the soul because I still had my soul. So now I can finally die on Kiddush Hashem. I can say Shema Yisrael as I'm dying, and you want me to complain? I can finally fulfill this mitzvah. So, this is understanding Shema Yisrael, just the first line. But then it says, we go briefly into Shema Yisrael. It says, these are the things that Hashem commands you. It goes through details, first and foremost, Teach your children Torah. So the first thing the Chazal is telling us here, Torah has to be the foundation of your life, especially when you're raising kids. Because without Torah, you have no life. You have no connection to Hashem. You won't make it. You may make it as a kofel, you may make it as a rasha, but you're not going to make it to Allah Abba. So first and foremost says Vishinantem Levanecha, meaning teach your children constantly Torah on a daily basis. Next. Again, it's reciting a uh, another paragraph out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter eleven, verse thirteen to twenty-one, where it talks about how again remind yourself on a regular basis of all of these mitzvot. And do them out of love. Don't do them like you're doing me a favor. Oh no, I'm keeping Shabbat because the rabbi said it's a Michal Shabbat is a bad thing. So I'm going to keep Shabbat. Like you're doing me a favor. Like you're doing Hashem a favor that you ate Chalan on Shabbat. Or that you lit the candles. Or that you're not driving. No, if you knew the significance of Shabbat. You knew the significance of the smallest mitzvah. You'd be excited to do it. The problem is we don't know. Oh, how do we know? We educate ourselves. So first is educate. Second thing is, once you educate yourself, start doing things out of love. 
this will eliminate you getting used to it. But then, it's the part that I think everyone misses every day. Despite of whether they read it two or three times a day, most people, mamash, act as if this part doesn't exist in this generation, at least from my experience. It says this exactly. In many shuls, unfortunately, they've got the minag to this next part that I'm going to read to you. They actually say it so quietly, you can't hear it. I'm serious, they can't hear it. This is the part where they say, don't say it. They, you go to the Knesset, they get to this part, you're supposed to read the whole Shema Yisrael out loud. They get to this part, they say it quietly, we can't hear it. Every person reads it to himself. Which is the opposite of what the sages used to do. The sages used to read it extra loud. We're the opposite. Same thing of how certain parts of the Kriyat Torah, throughout the year, Parashat Kitavo, Parashat Bechukotai, there's a couple of Parashat in the Torah that have curses in them, that have punishments in them. In the old days, the Chazan, would, uh, the Baal Koreh, would actually repeat these uh, Klalot extra loud to get fear of Shemaim uh, into their hearts. In today's world, many places, not everyone, but many places do it so quietly that you can barely hear it. It's the opposite. But let me finish. You have uh, something relevant to the point or something else? Yeah, it's relevant. Okay. Um, is it the part where, like, it says if you follow the commandments, he will, like, give rain at the proper time, and if you don't, then... Yes, yes, exactly. That's what we're going to get to. Because so, I used to get like, our school sitter every day Yeah, so here's the thing. This is the part where it says here. So now if you follow the mitzvot, I will give you all these wonderful things. I'll give you food at its proper time. Rain in its proper time, this is a big thing. People don't think that rain in its proper time is a big thing. It's a huge thing. Why? Because if you get too much rain, it destroys the field. Not enough rain, destroys the field. Rain in its proper time is mamash a miracle. So imagine you get food right after you starve to death. But a lot of food, but you're dead. It's not worth anything. Or you have a lot, a lot of food, but you already ate. It's also worth, worthless. Why? Because it's all going to go bad by the time you're hungry again. So rain, Panasana at the right time, is a, is a major blessing from Shemayim. Shem says you do all these things. Not only do you do my, fulfill my mitzvot, but you fulfill them with love. You act like you're not doing me a favor, you're doing yourself a favor. I'll give you all these blessings. Whatever you want, I'll give you and more. I'll give you things you couldn't even imagine you wanted. I'll give you everything. Shalom bayit, good kids, Panasat tovah, everything and anything you can imagine, and that's just a down payment. For this 70, 80, 120 years you live in this world, it's not even a comparison of what you're going to get in the real world. Just do a few things. Say kriyachma, say be nice to people, give stakah, do late filin, pray to me a few times a day, learn to lie every day, fulfill a few mitzvot, what's the big deal? You're going to get all these things. But the problem is, we sometimes forget. So Hashem says, okay, in case you forget, I have something to remind you. In case you forgot. You turned aside and you worshipped other gods. And you bowed down to them. Then I will blaze you with anger. Hashem will uh, blaze anger against you. You will restrain the heavens and there will be no rain. And the land will not yield any produce, and you'll perish quickly. 
from the good land which Hashem gives you. This tiny little thing I just read. This is the most critical part of the Shema Yisrael that you have to mamash, tattoo to your heart. Why? Because it shows you there's a condition. Once you know there's a condition, everything changes. If your boss or your customer tells you, listen, you can do whatever you want. What are you going to do? You can do whatever you want. But if he tells you, listen, you can do whatever you want, but just in case you're not really sure what I mean, if you don't do what I want, if what you want is not what I want, then I'm going to send people to your house and they're going to beat you up nonstop. Just in case. Just like you, you can do whatever you want. But I'm going to send people to your house they're going to beat you up all day. So now you're going to say, oh, wait, hold on a second. Before I do what I want, what do you want? Because maybe we both want the same thing now. Because there's a condition now. And Hashem is telling you there's a condition. If you don't do what I want, then everything that I just promised you is not going to happen. But not only is it not going to happen, the opposite is not going to happen. It's not that you're going to go from having large amount of produce to a little bit. No, no, you're saying I'm going to cease it completely. You're going to starve to death. You're going to get punished. Now everybody's saying, wait a minute, this is he's referencing here. Elohim Acharim, he's referencing here idol worship. I'm not an idol worship. I kiss the mezuzah, I go to Beknesset. Not idol worshiper. No, no, my friends. Elohim Acharim, if you look at the Gemara, Masechet Abodah doesn't always mean other gods as far as you know, bowing to some statue or uh, the New Testament or any of that stuff. Elohim Achim also means anything that steers your attention away from God, including your job, including money, including sports, including hobbies. Everything that steers your attention away from Hashem could potentially be, not always, could potentially be Avodah Zarah. To such an extent that the Gemara says that if you just burn the incense, some people like magic. And if you uh, watch some of these illusionists of today, some of their tricks are astounding. Making many people question whether these illusionists really are illusionists or they're actually using mystical powers from Shedim, from demons, to use to do their magic. Because some of the stuff is, you know, just quick hands. Or they fool you with different things. But some things are a must, like it's just ridiculous. Where there's just no natural way to do it. So some people, myself included, believe that there's a possibility that some of these people actually use Shadim, they use demons. And some people like the stuff, some people like to play Ouija boards, we're not going to get into all this crazy stuff, but the point I'm trying to tell you is that the Gemara says that if you just burn the incense, incense, like, a, uh, you know, like uh, for a nice smell, but it's something that's relevant to demons, then that's considered Avodah Zarah. Some of you just have incense. I burn it for a nice smell, but this is something you brought that's connected to a demon in some way or another. If you work too much to the point where you're not going to learn Torah anymore because you can skip the Shiur Torah because you work too much, that's you've turned money into your new God. So, point being here is that this is the part that's the most critical. This is the part that if we actually understood the consequence the cost of us not doing it, number one, we'd be too scared to be politically correct. Number two, we never, ever, there's no misinformation here. There's no two ways of understanding this. There's reward, 
there's punishment. And three, we never get used to it because if you actually understand what's being said here, how are you not going to be scared? Hashem is telling you outright, listen, you don't, you do it. Shrecha. Ashrecha v'ashrecha. You're going to get all the reward. You'll be in great shape. You don't do it. Oh, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're going to get the worst possible punishments that mankind has ever seen. It's the worst thing. So now, he's telling you how once, if you don't do it, you do tshuva, you put these words back onto your neshama, you start doing tefillin. How do you protect yourself? You put tefillin on, you put tzitziot on, and so on and so forth. So, the first thing that Rabbi Shimon is telling you is that if you actually put serious kavanah into your Shema, into your simple Shema Yisrael, already changes your whole day. Just understand the words you're saying. Read it. Don't worry about what the Keilah is doing. You read it, take your time. But understand what you're saying. If you don't understand Hebrew, read it in English. If you don't understand English, read it in Russian. You understand Russian, read it in Arabic, whatever. Read it in whatever language you speak. If you don't understand any language, have somebody explain it to you. But you must know what it says. To just read it like a robot, that's not what Hashem created you to do. He didn't create you. He didn't want you to be a robot. Gemara Masechet Barachot, page 15b, takes it a step further. It says, anyone who is not careful with Kriyat Shema cannot avoid going to Gehenom. Kriyat Shema, Kriyat Shema, was something little kids know how to do. It's the first thing you learn. Kriyat Shema we're talking about. We're not talking about, hey, listen, the guy is, uh, eats pig every day. The guy is a Mahtiya Rabim, he makes other people sin, he has a, uh, I don't know, one of these Tavat Hashem stores that's full of pornography or something. We're not talking about that. Talk about somebody who doesn't read Kriyat Shema the right way. Kemara Brachot says you cannot avoid going to, to Gehenom. Why? Because he doesn't have the foundation. He doesn't know what he lives for. Bechal. He doesn't know there's a consequence. He doesn't know why he's even here. The Maharal, Miprag, said there's a really significant meaning in praying three times a day. Really, if you actually pay attention to it, it changed the way you look at prayer. It says, first thing, you pray in the morning. In reality, what you really, what your Yetzirah really wants to do is pamper yourself sleep a little longer, eat, I don't want to go pray to Hashem. I want to do everything else but pray to Hashem. Let's, let's be real here. You want to be in the bathroom praying with your phone for five hours, you want to look at some sport, you don't want to go pray to Hashem. Since the first thing you're doing, Hashem is requiring you to go pray to Hashem, this is to remind you to recognize that you need Him. Everything you're going to get that day, you need him. Tell them. Then you have another prayer of Mincha. Middle of the day, you're busy with customers. They're yelling at you. You're yelling at them. They're complaining. You're complaining. Everyone's complaining. It's the middle of the day. Last thing you're thinking about is, let me go pray to Hashem. I'm about to close the deal, Hashem. Can you wait till Arvit? 
Can I just do it tomorrow? Can we do it twice tomorrow? What do you want? You want to go pray in the middle of the day? Said you're pursuing your livelihood. But this is to remind yourself that the only way you're going to get Parnasa is if Hashem decides you're going to get Parnasa. Gemara Masechet Rosh Shana and Masechet Beitza both say your Parnasa is decided from Rosh Hashana until Rosh Hashana. Your livelihood is decided already how much you're going to make on Rosh Hashana. Everything you're going to make from that Rosh Hashana until next year's Rosh Hashana decided already on one day. So the Baal Shem Tov asked, if it's already decided, it's already decided what I'm going to make on Rosh Hashanah. Why does the Gemara say that I also get judged for my Parnassah every day? If it's already decided, what are you judging me again? It's decided. It's a good question. So one day, the Baal Shem Tov sees this guy that used to carry water. Used to be sell water. And he asked him, how are you doing? And he says to him, Baal uh, Hashem, I have a very, very difficult life. And uh, I have this job that uh, is much torture. It's hot outside. It's My customers are unhappy. The water is not always as clean. It's complaining nonstop. The next day he sees him again. He says, how are you doing? He says, oh, Baruch Hashem, everything is great. Thank God Hashem has given me Parnassah. Thank God that today was a little uh, easier, less hot than yesterday. It's like a shecha. A shecha for teaching me Torah. Mm. Oh, guys, this water, the water man is saying, I taught Baal Shem Tov Torah. What did I teach you, Bechlan? Because for many years I've been wondering this question. When it says in the Gemara, in the Mishnah, we get judged on Rosh Hashanah. What we're going to get Parnasa from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah. But then the Gemara says something different. It says, yes, we get judged, but we get judged every day. Why are we judged every day if we already got judged? It was already decided. It was already decided how much we're going to make. Why are you judging me every day again? For what? And then I finally understood when I asked you, how are you? Yesterday you were complaining and today you weren't. But nothing really changed. You have the same job for 25 years already. The same water was just as heavy yesterday as it is today. The, wa- the weather really didn't change. What changed? Something in your neshama changed. What changed is that when you went to sleep, your neshama went up to Shemaim. The f- before the first time I saw you, it was decided in Shemaim that you made some averot, you made some sins, you have to repent for them. So tomorrow, the way you're going to get to Panasa, you're going to get, let's say, you know, $50,000. But the way you're going to get tomorrow's share, it's going to be very, very difficult. So automatically, when you woke up, you already Tisha B'Av. Automatically, you woke up, you were miserable. Nothing happened. You're already miserable. Why? Because your Neshama knows today's going to be a hard day. Today, then you went up to Shemaim. Again, you went to sleep. Your Neshama went up to Shemaim. They said, oh, today you went through your Kapat Avonot. You don't have kapalat of tomorrow. Tomorrow's living is going to come fine. No problems. So automatically your neshama is happy. You feel good. So now I finally understand. Even though it's decided on Rosh Hashanah how much I'm going to make. They decide every day how I'm going to make what I'm going to make based on my actions. 
That's why sometimes you wake up happy, sometimes you wake up upset. So a real smart person that believes this, what would they do? If they wake up upset, the first thing they need to know, I need to do tshuva because I did something wrong yesterday. If I continue acting like it's Tisha B'Av the whole day, I continue making sins, tomorrow's also going to be a bad day. So now, the Ma'arad tells us that in the middle of the day when you really don't want to pray, the reason for the, one of the things for the prayer is that it breaks up the day and it reminds you that all of the sales you're making, all of the customers you're having, the ones that are complaining are from Hashem. The ones that are giving you money are from Hashem. Everything is from Hashem. The good and the bad is all from Hashem. It reminds you that the only source of sustenance that you're going to get is from Hashem. And then at the end of a tiring day, when the only thing you really want to do is go to sleep, to be left alone, you have to delay your sleep and again go back to God. Last thing you want to do now is go talk to God. He's like, I'm tired already. I talked to God twice. So you did him a favor. If I told you, talk to the richest man in the world twice, he's like, oh, I can't talk, can't talk to him again. You had a meeting with Donald Trump twice today already. Oh, can I meet him again tomorrow? You're excited. Tell you about God? Eh, not so much. But, here it says that you have to turn back to God again. Why? Say thank you. Say thank you, you survived another day. Say thank you that He gave you everything that He gave you for that day. First, because you started off the day asking for stuff. Middle of the day, you remind yourself that this is where you're getting it from. But don't, don't forget to say thank you. Even a five-year-old knows to say thank you. The other thing that the Chazal uh, is telling us about the Shema is that it's, it contains the main articles of Judaism in general. Your whole belief system, the foundation of your entire belief in Hashem Ba'ach is found in Shema Yisrael. First thing is, is the unity of God. Automatically you destroy Christianity, Catholicism, and anything relating to anything other than Hashem Ba'ach. When as soon as you hear Hashem is one, that's it. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. There's no three gods, two gods, several, you know, nothing. There's nothing. That's it. There's only one God. Second, you have a duty and a mitzvah. Both of them are different mitzvot out of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah. You have a duty to love Hashem and you have a duty to fear Hashem. It's a mitzvah out of the 613 mitzvot. I know most people don't know the 613 mitzvot by heart. It's one of the 613 mitzvot is to love Hashem, and another one of the 613 mitzvot is to fear Hashem. And Shema Yisrael reminds you of both. Next thing is, it reminds you of your obligation to study Torah. You're not doing Him a favor. You're studying Torah as we learned last week, because Torah is not something you can inherit. Even if your father was a big Talmud Chacham, even if your grandfather was a rabbi, everybody tells me that grandfather was a rabbi. It means nothing. Maybe that's why you're still alive being a Mechalel Shabbat, but other than that, it means nothing. He's in Ganeden. You're maybe going to gain home if you don't start keeping Shabbat. The fact that he's a tzaddik doesn't help you. So, I'll finish this point and I'll answer the question. 
So, next thing is, you cannot inherit, you can't inherit the Torah, you have to study it. That's the third point. Fourth point, you can't just learn Torah, you have to fulfill it. You have to fulfill the commandments. Five, there's a reward and there's punishment. In my opinion, my lowly, you know, meaningless opinion, I believe this is the most part, most important part of the entire thing. This is, I think, in my opinion also, why it's one of the 13 principles of faith. Even though all of these things are, one way or another, part of the 13 principles of faith. This reward and punishment concept is what our generation needs more than anything else. Why? Because for some reason, we've humanized God, Hashem Yilachem. We've humanized God to such an extent that we act like He's our buddy. We act like He owes us something. We act like anytime something bad happens, like He should say, I'm sorry. Anytime we don't have Panasa'ah, why is Hashem doing this to me? What? Why is Hashem doing this to you? I'm lucky He didn't just kill you right now for saying that. But anyway, if there was a king of flesh and blood, just beat you up, just got you beat up, just took all your money, just killed somebody, just whatever, just insulted you in public. He said, hey, what are you doing this to me? No, you wouldn't dare. You'd put your head back into a little turtle cave. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I'll do, I'll do it better next time. For a king of flesh and blood, you start crying saying, I'm sorry. For a shemit bar, he's saying, why are you doing this to me? The chutzpah that you have, you're asking, why are you doing this to me? Why don't you look in the mirror? Why is he doing this to you? Why are you doing it to him? Why are you mechalel Shabbat? Why are you go looking at women that you're not allowed to look at? Why are you eating on kosher? Why are you not fulfilling the Torah? Why do you have so many flaws? And you're not even trying to work on them. If you were trying, Ashrecha, the job. Of course, you're expected to sin, but at least you're trying. If you're not trying... You, have, you dare even complain to Hashem? Why do we? Why are we at that such a far level? Because we don't think there's reward and punishment. We just think there's reward. We think of God as a lotto ticket. He's supposed to give us stuff. Like the idol worshippers, they created Santa Claus. Hashem The rest of us have created something else. We think that God is like just gives us stuff. Yes, He gives us stuff, but part of that stuff is punishment too. Punishment is also a reward. It wakes us up. So that's the next point. The next point after that is that we're taught in the Shema Yisrael to be cautious of the forces of desire and heresy. We have to control our midot. We have to control our desires. One of our desires is going to be things that are outright against the Shem. Sometimes we have the schut to desire Torah. Sometimes we have the schut to desire to fulfill mitzvot. But most of the time, our desires are the opposite of what Hashem wants from us. Are the opposite of what even our own neshama wants from us. What do we desire? We desire things like sex. We desire things like money. We desire things like kavod. We desire a lot of the things that are poison for our neshama. So now, you say, listen, if Hashem already put, instilled in us to have, to have these desires, why is He punishing for us? It's His fault. He put it in us that we want money. He put it in us that we want sex. He put it in us that we want kavod. He put it in us. He put the desire in you. But it's up to you to act on it. And that's the difference between you 
and an animal. An animal has no choice. As soon as a lion is hungry, he's going to go chase the giraffe and kill it. He's not going to ask the giraffe, giraffe, you okay if I kill you today? Oh, you have a bar mitzvah you have to attend to. You all right? You're, it's, it's good, it's good. Your, your family's okay with you. You said Kaddish, everything. You arranged everything. The funeral, everything's fine. I can eat you today. I'm hungry. Oh, you want me to wait today? All right. You know what? I'll wait till next week. Don't worry about it. I'll, don't worry. I'll eat a couple of the other uh, deers. They're fine with it. They're good with me. Lion's hungry. goes, he kills everyone. That's it. There's this instinct. Tiger's hungry. goes, kills anyone. The snake, the snake is the only creature of even when he's not hungry, he still eats. It's pure instinct. Because everything tastes the same to him. Whether it's a rat, or it's anything else, as soon as in front of him, as soon as he has prey in front of him, he eats it. It's pure instinct. If you're an animal, if you view yourself as an animal, as an outright animal, and you want to be judged like an animal, then why are you wearing any clothes? I have a friend, 26 years friend. We had a debate one time. Skin, he's an atheist. Or says he's an atheist. I don't really think anybody's a true atheist, but anyway, he says he's an atheist. And one time I had this debate, and we got to a point where he says, Listen, I told him, Listen, obviously we're not monkeys. You know, he believes in evolution. I'm like, Oh, well, if you believe in evolution, and we all came from monkeys, why is the monkey still here? If we all came from monkeys, then the monkey was supposed to disappear at some point. And it's supposed to be something that's like, you know, because if the monkey is the first stage, and we're, let's say, the fifth stage, and there's three stages in between us, then the three stages in between us, or at least one of them, is supposed to be here. The monkey is definitely supposed to be long gone. If there was really evolution like that. Why is the first stage here and the fifth stage here, but nothing in between? You don't see like a half monkey, half man running around. I'm like, so stop acting like a monkey. And he says something really stupid, but it stuck with me. He said, no, but you know what? I don't really see much of a difference between us and monkeys. And initially, it caught me off guard. And it's the last thing I expected somebody smart to say, because he's a very, very, he's a brilliant guy. Like, what? It's like the last thing I thought. I thought he's going to say something else. I mean, you know, you try to calculate what the other person's going to say. He throws a monkey wrench at me. He thinks, like, I don't think there's any difference between us and monkeys. And, you know, the conversation ended shortly after. And I thought about this for a while after it. And then I realized, you know what? He did it purely to end the conversation. Why? Because there's no way that he can believe that he's just like a monkey. There's no way that, he can, that anyone believes, even the people that work at the zoo, even the people that love animals more than they love some people. I remember when I had a dog, I loved my dog more than I loved most people. He was more loyal, more honest, more loving. Never gave me an excuse. It's very easy to love a dog more than people. At least most people. But nonetheless, the reality of it is, you don't think that you're like your dog. And you don't think that you're like the monkey. Why? Because you're still well clothes. If you really thought that you were like the monkey, and there's nothing different between you, why don't you just walk around naked? Jump from trees, eat bananas. Don't work. Live in a jungle. Do you see any, any, any monkey with gray hair worrying about a mortgage? Any mar- monkey worrying about what degree he's going to get in college or whether he's going to get into uh, Pace University or Princeton? Do you see any monkey worrying about his degree or whether he's going to become a rabbi one day? Or he's going to fulfill any mitzvah? No. So why don't you go be a monkey? Go, enjoy. You can't be both. 
Can't be monkey with clothes on. That's a circus act. So don't be a circus act. So next thing is, is that the desires that we have, they destroy us to such an extent that a small desire, according to Gemara Masichet Shabbat, page 105, it says, this is the way of the Yitzhara. First he tells you this, then he tells you that, then he tells you that you keep following what he says. First he tells you, listen, just eat salad. A salad, small salad at Starbucks. Salad. This rabbi is a fanatic. What could possibly be wrong with a salad? First he tells you, eat a salad. Then he tells you, eat the chocolate bar. Even though the chocolate bar doesn't really have a kosher symbol on it, what could possibly be wrong with a kosher, with a chocolate? It's chocolate. If you look at the ingredients, most likely it's beetles. But nonetheless, the rabbi is a fanatic. Then he tells you from salad, he tells you chocolate. Then he tells you, you know what? This whole Shabbat thing, you can keep the first day. Keep Friday, sleep most of uh, Saturday. But as soon as you wake up at 4 o'clock on uh on Shabbat, on Saturday afternoon, if Shabbat's over, you kept all of Shabbat. You didn't, it's Hashem's fault. Play with your phone, drive in a car, watch a little TV. It's a rabbinical. It's rabbinical. You know, start creating things. And little by little, the Satan leads you slowly but surely away from the truth to such an extent that it says in the Shema Yisrael that eventually you start worshipping idols. This is exactly what the Gemara says, little by little. He starts with some small sin, bigger sin, bigger sin, bigger sin, bigger sin, bigger sin. Now a lot of people have this confusion about rabbinical mitzvot. I think, listen, this is rabbinical. It's not uh, really from the Torah. It's rabbinical mitzvot. And it's the figure that, you know what? If you play with the phone, if you drive a car on Shabbat, then obviously that's a biblical sin because a car is fire. And it says in this week's parasha, parashat Vayekel, in uh, chapter 35, verse 3, it starts actually verse 2. Shabbat on six days work may be done, but on the seventh day shall be holy for you. A day of complete rest for Hashem. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle fire in any of your dwellings on a Shabbat day. This is this week's parasha. Believe it or not, last week's parasha Kitisa also talked about death penalty for Vechilu Shabbat. And as many of you that went over through the Chumash know that almost half the Torah, half the Torah talks about Shabbat. Which is part of the reason why we mention it so much, and I actually want to do a whole shiur today about Shabbat, but apparently that wasn't the, uh, what Hashem wanted yet. But anyway, so most people say, you know what, okay, Shabbat, fire, we know that a car is fire. Why? Because even if whether you want to do logic, you know that you're turning on an engine is fire, the gas is fire, the engine is fire, it's all fire. But if you want to look at an engineer report, I have a student, I think he's based out of Canada, who actually is an engineer. He says, the, uh, and he calculated, how many fires do you light when you're driving a car? He says, with an average car, not a Ferrari and not Formula One and not a uh, Tustus, you know, a regular basic car, a little Honda Accord or something. So you're driving 60 miles an hour, you're lighting no less than 6,000 fires. No less than 6,000 fires for driving regular speed limit. 
But that's just one, just one every time you press the gas pedal. Not the whole time, not from the trip from the house to the Bekneset on Shabbat is 6,000 fires. Every time you press the gas pedal, it's 6,000 different fires. So already we know, okay, this is a problem. It's not one fire, it's 6,000 fires. 6,000 sins. Said that we get it, no good. But now, people say, but this is all rabbinical sins. This is all biblical sins, but you know, what about the phone? What about the phone? Phone is not a, uh, it's not really fire. TV is not really fire. It's not. As a matter of fact, the Rav Slovachik, Zechit Tzadivik, Kadosh Livracha, he uh, said that when they came out with uh, electricity and so on, they were actually looking for ways to make it not allowed. Even though it wasn't mamash fire, like we know fire, they were looking for ways to make it not allowed. Why? Because they knew that if they make electricity allowed, permissible, slowly but surely there would be no longer Shabbat. So they made it a rabbinical gzerah, no electricity on Shabbat unless you leave it on or you have a timer and so on. But this is, again, this is the fence around the fence that Hashem permitted the sages to have. Which includes your phone, which includes your television, includes all of these things that you don't think are fire, you don't agree that are fire. It's really fire, but nonetheless you don't agree. You say it's only rabbinical. So, and we think it's not really a big deal to go against what the rabbis say. So if you look at Proverbs, written by the wisest man that ever lived, and he says this, If one turns aside his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayer will be considered an abomination. So Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest man that ever lived, is telling us, giving us a small, tiny little reminder. Hashem implemented the Torah, gave us the basic laws of the Torah, but He also gave us the sages to deliver it to us. And part of the rule is for the sages to put a fence around Hashem's fence. Meaning, if someone makes a biblical sin, someone makes a deoraita sin, they light an outright fire, they uh, sow on Shabbat, they do something like that, there is no tshuva, it's death penalty. If there's witnesses to it at the times of the Bet HaMikdash, there's no tshuva for it. If they made an accidental sin, then there's tshuva, they have to bring a korban. But if they made an intentional sin, they sowed. So, not lit fire, they just sowed. Sowed a little bit, people told them you're not allowed to. Next weekend they came back and saw them, saw them again. He said there's no tshuva, they kill them. They have to stop with the worst possible punishment. So, this is again after warnings and it goes to trial and so on and so forth so we think okay listen this is a biblical sin so to get to that point we don't want anybody to get to that point so the rabbis were charged with the responsibility to get people as far from that sin as possible meaning they would put a fence around the fence in a sense saying let me get you not only to not make that sin but to not even get to something that technically really isn't a sin, that's a biblical sin, but is going to get you one step closer to making the real biblical sin. So not only are you not allowed to light fire, but now you're not even allowed to watch TV. 
Because if you watch TV, then you're going to think that, hey, if I could turn, if I could press a button to turn on my TV, what's the difference if I press a button to turn on my car? If I, uh, you know, if I do one thing, it's going to lead me to other things. If, let's say, for example, there's something called, a concept called mukte. If I were allowed to, let's say, pick up the pen and put it away, a pen, put it away, then I would say, what's the big deal? I already picked up the pen. What's the difference if I start writing? I'm only writing five words. I'm not writing a whole, I'm not writing a Megillah. I'm writing five words just to remind myself what I need to do on Monday. So there's a fence around the fence. So there's certain things that the rabbis implemented to protect us, to not get us to the ultimate sin. But for the honor of Torah, Hashem said that a Talmud Chacham is more valuable than a prophet. And therefore, it says that if someone, Shlomo Melech says, if someone doesn't want to hear his Torah, doesn't want to hear a Talmud Chacham, doesn't want to hear a Biakiva, doesn't want to hear what the Gemara says. Doesn't want to hear what the Gedol Adol say. Doesn't want to hear what the Poskim say. Just say, no, I'm going to decide for myself what's fire, what's not fire, what's mukze, what's not mukze. I'm going to decide to just listen to the written Torah. I'm not going to listen to the oral Torah. He says, just remember, you want to do that? Fine. Just remember, when you pray to Hashem, you pray to Hashem, your prayer is considered disgusting. Forget about the fact that he's unhappy with you. Forget about the fact that obviously you're making sins. That even at the time that you're going to need Hashem, you're screaming because the medicine is not working. You're screaming because you have no food to eat. You're screaming because the anesthesia is not working. You woke up in the middle of surgery like I did. You're screaming because the painkillers don't work. Screaming, Hashem, help me. Shlomo Amalek says, what? What did he say? I'm busy right now. I'll get back to you. A couple of hours. What do you mean? I'm dying here in pain. When I asked you to keep Shabbat and listen to my rabbis, you didn't listen. Why should I listen to you? It's to that extent, it's mamash, mamash, a something that Hashem takes very seriously, very, very personally. Why? Because his talmidim chachamim, his sages, that's his company. That's who advertises him all day. That's his number one employees. That's his children. That's his number one children. It's the best ones. You going to go against them? So this is another thing that we have to remind ourselves in Kriyat Shema. Get ourselves away from this thought of finding our own way. There's a way, there's a Masoret, follow it. Don't try to become Rashi. Don't try to become Tosfot, don't become the next Rambam. There's a way, there's a system, find a Rav, stick to him, that's it. As long as he tells you the truth... And it's no, like, uh, you know, 50-50. Stick with it. Last but not least, it reminds us to recognize Hashem Barach as the source of all blessings. Everything and anything that's any good, bad, or indifferent comes from Hashem. That's what the Kriyach is supposed to remind you every day. The good, the bad, and the things that you have no idea what they are yet, all comes from Hashem. If you really have your brain and neshama rewired to think like that, you'll never complain again. You'll mamash live a lifestyle like Rabbi Akiva, where he said, everything that the merciful one said, everyone, everything that the merciful one uh, does, is always for the best. The last page. Everything that he does, is always the best. Only it's always the best.
How can it be the best? Maybe it's second best. Maybe third best. It says Hashem, unlike us, has an infinite amount of options. Let's say if I want to go from here, I need to go to New York in a couple of weeks. There's a lot of different options that I can take. I can go with it by plane. I can go by several different types of planes. I can use JetBlue if I want to have a decent flight. Or I can use Spirit if I want to torture myself. If I want to bring myself in Kapatavanot, I use them. Or I could use uh, American Airlines if I want to pay extra. <laughs> I could do all these things. I could use plane. But then if I don't want to go to plane, I want to go by car. If I have nothing to do with my life, I want to drive for a day and a half. I'm going to use a car. Or I could use a boat. Or I could use a helicopter if I have infinite amount of money and I want to spend it on gas. Or if I'm just really bored and I want to make a movie, then I'll just walk there. I'll be the next Forrest Gump. Point is, there's a lot of different options for me to get from point A to point B. Hashem, Le'avdim, has much more. But unlike me, where each one of my choices has consequences, and each one could be better than the next, and I don't really know which one is the best. I could pick JetBlue, but JetBlue could have a delay. I could pick Spirit, but Spirit may have a new plane, and that's the biggest one. I could choose walking, and I end up meeting, I don't know, Mashiach on the way. I can do something, you know, each option that looks the worst can be the best. I don't know which one is the best, really. I'm guessing. Hashem doesn't guess. Whatever Hashem does is always the best option out of all of the possible options that could ever be. Meaning that everything and anything that's happening in your life, including the suffering, including the pain, including the anguish, including everything that's negative and everything that's positive, is always the best possible choice that could be made for you. So you'd ask me, natural question would be, why would Hashem think that it's any good to punish me? Why can't He just give me a reward or, I don't know, talk to me through a bush, a burning bush like Moshe Rabbeinu? Because number one, you're not Moshe Rabbeinu. And number two, you did something and you deserve punishment for it. And there's two choices at the very least. One choice is to suffer it for a day here. You broke your finger. You got a flat tire. You lost a job. Whatever. A million and a half things that could happen to a person. Or two, it could be 50,000 years in gain. No. Choose one. Same, same sin. Same sin. It's just that time is different here than it is there. Here it could be a moment. There it could be years. Choose one. Suffer 50,000 years and burning coal and fire and tachat, which is burning feces, or you want to lose some money in this world. Lose a million bucks, lose 10 million bucks, lose 50 million bucks. Which one? If you really knew the options, of course you would choose the suffering here. That's the point of learning. So... Next, the last part is to recognize that Hashem is the source of all blessing, all good, all bad, everything and anything in between. This is what's going to get you to a point of having full kavanah when you're praying. You had a question? Yeah, um, me, me personally, I like to read on Shabbat, but for some people it's a little bit harder to, you know, buckle down and read. And I had uh, someone bring up an idea to me that during Shabbat, they could possibly, let's say, make a 25-hour mixtape of Shiolim, play on the TV, they start it, they don't touch it the rest of the Shabbat, and it plays throughout the whole Shabbat. 
then they're not touching the TV from there. Is that permitted? No. It's not? There's, 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 a, uh, there's a few different sins involved. Number one, en mitzvah There's no such thing as making a mitzvah by way of sin. So to listen to a radio, listen to a television, or watch television on Shabbat is not allowed. So to even though the to listen to a shiurah is allowed, you're doing it in a disallowed way, in a prohibited way. So you're not allowed to make a mitzvah by way of of uh, avera. That's number one. Two, the reason why technically you're not allowed to watch TV because technically, if you just started to keep Shabbat, you know, many rabbis will tell you if they let's say some people will have a problem with TV, they watch TV on Shabbat. And you tell them, listen, don't watch TV. You say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to keep nothing, and, you know, I have to watch TV. So people that are very, very weak-minded, then you tell them, listen, you're not allowed to watch TV. No one's ever going to tell you you're allowed to watch TV. You're not even allowed to watch TV even on a, on a uh, regular day. Takes you away from Torah. Takes you away from Torah. It's, it's complete garbage and a million other things. I mean, Shio Torah on TV. Right. Different. You're not going to listen to Shio Torah on Shabbat. Let's, let's, let's be real. If you listen to Shio Torah on Shabbat, then you, go, you can walk, go to Bekneset. You go to a million, a million ways. Yeah, regular days. But anyway, the uh, the thing is with a uh, with um, TV on Shabbat. So what they would tell you is like, listen, at least leave the TV on. Don't touch the remote. At least it's lesser of a sin. It's still a sin, but it's not chilul Shabbat as far as fire. The the problem with watching TV or listening to a radio on Shabbat is not chilul Shabbat of fire because you're not touching the remote unless you're touching the remote. It's onik chilul of onik Shabbat. It's not the way to honor Shabbat. And the only reason why we would ever dishonor Shabbat is because we really don't understand the significance of Shabbat. What uh, time is it? How much time do we have? Like 12.40? It's 12.40? 40, 40. 40. Sorry, sorry. So we have... Uh, okay, okay. you know what? It's, I think this is a very, very needed thing. The reason why we'd ever get to a point of... Not even just Chilul Shabbat of driving in a car on Shabbat or uh, watching TV on Shabbat or playing on a phone on Shabbat or doing anything that's not only just Chilul but also Chilul of the Oneg of Shabbat, the honor of Shabbat. It's because the reality of it is that we don't know the consequences. We really don't know the consequences. So I prepared a few things that will give us an understanding of the consequences, both the reward, but mostly the punishment part. And the reason why the punishment is critical is because we already have a mindset that Hashem owes us something anyway, so we every, everyone thinks that there's only reward. So it's important for us to know a little bit about the punishment. A lot of people think that I mention Shabbat very often. And as I mentioned previously, Shabbat is mentioned in nearly half the Torah. It's mentioned more times than anything else except conversion, except Hashem's special love for converts. Why is Hashem mentioning the honor and the observation of Shabbat more than anything else? Because it's literally the foundation of Judaism and belief in Hashem Barach. In Parashat Bereshit, Hashem tells us that He created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Not because He needed rest, not because He needed the break, but rather because He did something beyond what you would think he's able to do, which is he refrained himself from creating. The only reason why Hashem created Shabbat is for you. It's not for him. He's already perfect. He's already perfect. He was perfect before the world. He's going to be perfect after the world. He's perfect during the world. The only reason why he created anything is because good 
is known to be good by its creation of good. You, you know whether you're a good person or not or by whether you do good things or not. If you say inside your heart, I'm a good person, but in reality you're a Nazi, you're not a good person. You're just lying to yourself. If you say that you're a good person, but you're the stingiest person on earth, you don't give any tzedakah, you don't even want to give your wife any money to eat, you're not a good person. You're just a liar that's fooling himself. But if you give tzedakah, you're a Baal Chesed, you help people in all different ways, then you potentially could be a good person. Still doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person yet, but you're doing good things. Now, Hashem is good, therefore He created good. He created a way for us to benefit out of His goodness. But during His creation, He says, I want them to feel like me. I want my creation to feel like me. Now, obviously they can't be God. But I want them to have a feeling like I had when I created. Therefore, I created things on six days, and on the seventh day I stopped creating. Now, if I stop creating, that's a certain feeling that Hashem had, and therefore, if we stop creating as human beings, as Am Yisrael, therefore, we have, in essence, a feeling like God did. Now, if that's not enough of an explanation, Hashem says, listen, everything that was created in this world, is essence, is a way for us to honor Hashem. In this week's parasha, parashat Vayekel, after the first couple of verses that I just read to you before, the talk about Shabbat, the rest of the parasha repeats what's mentioned already in the last couple of parashot, which is the construction of the tabernacle. The Bet HaMikdash of the desert. The tabernacle, the Bet HaMikdash of the desert, was actually holier, holier than the first and second Bet HaMikdash. It was never destroyed, it was just dismantled, and it was holier than all of them. And Hashem is giving us precise instructions in this parasha, in last week's parasha, in next week's parasha, of how to build it. Exactly what to use, the measurements, everything and anything, who can donate, who can't donate, Everything, all the details of how to build Hashem a house on earth. But before this, he mentions, don't violate Shabbat. What does one thing have to do with the other? What is a whole parasha is talking about building Hashem a house on earth, and he's giving you the details, the measurements, who to hire, who to fire, who to contract, who to get titles from, where do you get the trucks, where do you get the best prices? What does it have anything to do with don't violate the Shabbat? It has nothing to do with it. Or it has everything to do with it. Chazal explains to us that the reason why in the beginning of this parasha, and actually other times in the Torah, it's mentioned Shabbat, right before, right after the discussion, the lengthy discussion of the details of the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is because from here, from the building of the Mishkan, is where we learn of the 39 things we're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Everything, all 39 actions that were used to build the Mishkan, 
all 39 actions that were, built, that were used to build the Beta Mikdash of the desert, the holiest thing that ever existed on this planet, all 39 things that were allowed to do there, you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Why? Why those 39, not some other 39? What's the connection? It's a constant reminder to each and every single one of us that Shabbat is so holy that even to build God's house, you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Even to work for God and building Him His own house that He commanded you to do in the first place, you could only do during six days. But you can't do on the seventh day. So obviously if you can't work for God on Shabbat, who tells you that it makes any sense for you to go work for your company on Shabbat, for your customer on Shabbat, for anyone on Shabbat? Now most of us don't have this concept of Shabbat to such an extent where we realize how significant it really is the Oneg of Shabbat. And here I'm talking about not only the people that violate Shabbat because of, unfortunately they don't know what Shabbat is, but I'm actually also talking about people that keep Shabbat. The frum, half frum, Baal Chuvaz. Many of them don't have an idea of the significance of Oneg Shabbat. In the old days, and in some places in the world they still do it, in Jerusalem, Bnei Brak, is when Shabbat comes in, there's somebody that screams, Shabbat! Shabbat's coming in as a warning. In reality, this warning should be in each one of our houses. Shabbat's coming! An hour before Shabbat comes in. Shabbat's coming! Why? What is Shabbat in it? Shabbat is Hashem's daughter. Now, just like each one of us likes ourselves, we're even more protective of our children. You can do anything you want to me. You can curse me. You can punch me. You can insult me. You can do whatever you want. People have fun with me on the internet. You say one thing about my daughter, I'm going to find out where you live. Do you understand? Each one of us is the same thing. Our children, it's our life. So Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I have a precious gift to give to Am Yisrael. In my treasures. And its name is Shabbat. When Hashem says He has a treasure and He's going to give you the biggest part of His treasure and the name of it is Shabbat and that's His daughter. And she comes to your house every week. By dishonoring her, there's no bigger chutzpah than that. And that's why when you're going to hear a few of the things that I say now that are very scary, you'll understand why. The Chafetz Chaim, Arab Israel Meir Kagan, explained the Midrash saying the following There are many different types of precious gems in the world, some of which are literally priceless. Very few people have the means to purchase a large collection of such jewels. Even kings and emperors would find it difficult to obtain samples of every type of gem known to man. The more powerful the king, the more vast his empire, the more likely it is that he will have a larger collection of rare gems. Hashem Barach, the king of all kings, has access to all of the treasures of gold, silver, and jewels in the universe. But nevertheless, 
He does not take pride in any of these. The only thing that he calls a treasure is Shabbat. This is what he calls his precious gift. Clearly it's impossible for us to conceive of its true value. Yet every Jew has access to this gift. All he needs to do is observe Shabbat. Everyone should be anxious to observe it and be at the very best of their abilities. Exert the best, the best of their abilities to gain the largest portion of this precious gift. The Rambam in Ilchot Shabbat, chapter 30, 15, wrote, Whoever observes Shabbat as the halacha prescribes and honors it and indulges in its pleasures to the best of his ability will receive an abundant reward in this world in addition to the reward set aside for him in the world to come. To such an extent that the observing Shabbat will forgive all of a person's sins, including idol worship. Said Rabbi Chia Barabba. So here we get a little bit of a taste, a little bit, not much, but a little bit of a taste of this precious treasure. But since you don't really understand that much, obviously it comes to, to Hashem Itbach, and Mount Sinai says, Hashem, give us all these Tariyag mitzvot, 613 mitzvot. Tariyag, by the way, is the gematria, the numerical value of 613. It's not an actual word, it's just a combination of letters that equals to 613. Tariyag. Taf, Resh, Yud, Gimel. Taf is 400, Resh is 200, so that's 600. Yud is 10, Gimel is 3, 613. I never knew this, so I found it very interesting when I finally learned it at some point. So Tayak Mitzvot that we have, it's a lot. It's a big responsibility. Amisai goes to Hashem. Hashem, what do we get for this? Hashem answers, you get Olam Abba. Amisai returns. You know, there's no Jew like a Jew that answers a question with another question. It says, give me a sample. And Hashem says, Shabbat. Shabbat's the sample of Olam Abba. If you honor Shabbat like you're supposed to. If all you do on Shabbat, you prepare for it by the time you got to Shabbat, you know, the wife is half dead. The house she cleaned for the last two days is a mess because, you know, there's kids in the house. And everybody's frustrated and everybody's fighting. Or on top of that, you know, father's not really interested in Shabbat. He's interested in business. So he's going to go meet a few people in the Bikness and talk to them about the business they're going to do on Tuesday and Wednesday, which is Chilul Shabbat, by the way. You're not allowed to talk about business. To such an extent that the Vilna Gaon one time tells a story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai heard his mother Say something. Wasn't a uh, wasn't a sinful discussion. Just said, just said something. With she used a few extra words more than she needed. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, "Ima Shabbat," and she quieted down. 
Meaning you have to even watch your words to such an extent that Chazal debated as a machloket of whether you're even allowed to say Shabbat Shalom. Shalom being an extra word. What's the, what's the argument in favor to say it? Shalom is also one of the other names for Hashem. It's one of the names of God. But the point being is that to that extent, to that extent, you're not even allowed to say extra words. People talk business. Hashem Elohim. Rabbi Eliezer Papo, in his famous well-known Pele Yoetz, cited the Chida. He said, there's no cure for our souls other than to observe Shabbat. Even if we do complete Shuvah for all of our sins, everything depends on our observation of Shabbat. We've suffered countless tragedies because of our laxity of observing Shabbat, and there's no doubt that we've languished in the exile for many hundreds of years because of this sin. Gemara Masechet Shabbat says that the reason of why the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed was actually because of Chilul Shabbat. The idol worship that they're talking about, it wasn't just idol worshipping of like different psalim, different idols. Also idol worship of Chilul Shabbat. Because Chilul Shabbat and idol worship are considered the same in Hashem's eyes. There's a few things that will give us a little bit of Yirat Shemaim. The Rambam wrote in Ilchot Shabbat 30, Someone who transgresses any of the other mitzvot of the Torah is still considered a Jew. Eats non-kosher, goes with a woman that's not, that he's not allowed to be with. Shem Rechem does a lot of many, many other sins he can do. Still considered a Jew. A wicked one, but a Jew. But someone who publicly desecrates Shabbat, drives to Beknesset on Shabbat, lights a cigarette on Shabbat, watches television, everyone knows that he learned that he's watching television on Shabbat. He's a public desecrator of Shabbat, meaning, as Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah describes and defines what a public desecration of Shabbat is. It doesn't mean you have to be outside telling, hey everyone, I'm lighting fire. Hey everyone, I'm driving on Shabbat. No, as long as 10 people know that you don't keep Shabbat, every sin you make on Shabbat is considered befaresia. It's considered a public sin. Ten people need to know, not need to see. Rambam says, someone who publicly desecrates a Shabbat is considered for all halachic purposes to be on the level of the member of the idolatrous nations. Not a goy, but an idol worshiper. A goy could be a tzaddik. A goy could be Job, a yov, prophet, amazing. No, we're not talking about that. Talking about someone, a Jew that's a Mechalel Shabbat, is an idol worshiper. He's Tohavat Hashem. The Holy Zohar says, every Friday afternoon there's an announcement broadcasted throughout every section of Gehenom that all suffering of the sinners has to be halted. Stop. Shut the fires. Genom has a break. Gemarai Megillah says, exact measurements of Gan Eden. We know exactly how big Gan Eden is. But he said, Genom has no size. It continues expanding. 
There's many more sinners than there are righteous people. But even Gehenom has a break. Shabbat. But for those who did not observe the Shabbat while they were alive, the fires of Gehenom are not extinguished. It continues for them. They continue getting punished even on Shabbat. Another part of the Zohar in Parashat Bamidbar It says that although there are many wicked people in the in Gehenom they're all there for different sins the ones that didn't sin for Chilul Shabbat one of their benefits is to light the fire to burn the Mechalel Shabbat. Guy is a thief, but he's still getting a benefit of punishing the Mechalel Shabbat. As we mentioned before, Hashem created Shabbat for us to give us a feeling like He had. If He had feelings, this is what He would feel. He stopped creating. He says, One who desecrates Shabbat is considered to deny the truth of the entire Torah and is given the Allahic status of a non-Jew. This is in Pitet Shuva by Rabbi Akiva Higel and also by Rabbi Akiva Higel. Why do the Puskim say to such an extent? Because someone who desecrates Shabbat is in essence saying that Hashem didn't create the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So it's the same thing as if He said that Hashem didn't create the world at all. In Gemara Masechet Ta'anit, page 24b, says there was once a populous city named Tu Shimon. Eventually, Hashem punished the city and destroyed it. What happened? The people in the town started playing with a ball on Shabbat. A place where there was no Yerub, there was no, they weren't allowed to play in a ball. For playing with a ball. Not for driving on Shabbat, smoking cigarettes. Hashem destroyed the entire city. Rav Meir Simcha of Dvinsk wrote in Meshech Chochma If a Jew does not observe Shabbat he lowers himself to less than the status of a dumb beast and in order for him to achieve atonement he must be punished with stoning he has to be stoned to death because if he is not stoned he has to be punished in Shemaim. So if he punished thee, you're not punished up there. We don't have stoning anymore in this world. We don't have Betamikdash, we don't have Sanhedrin. Which means that any Chilul Shabbat can only get the punishment 
from heaven. Sometimes Hashem punishes us here. It's a car accident, or anything like that. But he's saying, the only thing that he, he, he that could happen to him to his benefit is if he gets stoned. Why if he gets stoned is a benefit? Because if he doesn't get stoned, the connection of his soul with God and his Torah, which is in essence the bond between God and the nation of Israel, is severed. Without him having a punishment for his Chilul Shabbat, there's no connection between him and Hashem. Meaning that the now that he violated Shabbat on purpose, Bepharesia, drove on Shabbat, did all these things on Shabbat, he has to be punished. Unless he does full Shabbat. Because if he doesn't get punished, there's no connection. He's disconnected from Hashem, Hashem Yerachem. Therefore, he says, Arav Meir Simcha of Dvinsk. It's one of the Gdolei Historia. Executing him with stoning is actually doing him a great favor. Rav Meir Kagan again, Rav Yisrael Meir Kagan again says, Someone who desecrates Shabbat is liable to be punished with karet. What's karet? Karet includes the consequences of dying childless, not having any kids, never bearing any children, losing one's children, Hashem Yachem. Kids die because of this. He says, it amazes me that people can simply ignore this reality. If someone would strike another person's child, even lightly, give him a little slap in the head. You see someone's little kid, you, know, you don't like the kid or whatever, something you think you're playing or whatever it is, you slap the little kid in the head. And certainly if the kid was injured because of this, and he'd need uh, medical attention, the parent would hate that person forever. Just touch my kid. Chop off your hands. That's what any parent, any normal parent says. Who are you touching my kid? Who are you to touch my kid? The parent would hate the person who abused this child, even if the abuser paid for all the medical expenses. He hit him, even by accident, he hit him. But he ended up breaking his leg because of it. He ended up, something happened. And the guy says, I'm sorry, I'll pay for the expenses. The parent's still going to hate him. But yet, the parent is willing to desecrate Shabbat and place his own children in mortal danger with his Chilul Shabbat. How are you mad at this guy for hitting your kid, but you're putting your kid's life at risk every time you turn on the car on Shabbat? This is what Rabbi Saimir Kagan said. I'll finish the point and I'll answer your question. This is the Chafetz Chaim, by the way. The Chafetz Chaim again continues in Shem Olam 6. No one should question the fact that we see many people who desecrate the Shabbat regularly and yet are successful in all of their endeavors. You see people driving on Shabbat, but they're driving a Ferrari. How could this be? Chafetz Chaim says, it's no question, Bichlal. If you have patience, you're going to see cancer grow in their midst and it will eventually destroy everything. This is the words of the Chafetz Chaim. Even if we see some people living out their whole lives in peace, this happens only so that they can be destroyed utterly in the world to come. This is as it says in the, in the uh, Torah, Parashat Vayetchanan, the last three verses. 
where he talks about he, he, Hashem pays his lovers for thousands of generations, but to his haters, he pays them cash to their face to eliminate them. He will not delay their payment even one bit. He gives them payment right now for anything good they did in this life. And in this world, he pays them cash right now so they don't have a share of the world to come, Hashem Yerachem. Meaning when you see somebody violating Shabbat, but he's driving a Ferrari, he has a big building, he has got, it looks like he's got the world in his palm of his hands. There's no per- person in the world that's more miserable than he is because he's the guy we talked about at the beginning. He's the guy with the disease, but he doesn't even know he's sick. Yeah, you had a question? One reason is the fact that them suffering will cause suffering to their parents. There's no worse punishment to somebody than seeing his kids die before them. Second thing is the, the neshama of the child is, you know, if let's say for example they get, you know, they were brought here, they're not really a child. They were somebody that was here already before. There's no such thing as really a baby anymore. Each one of our neshamot has been here multiple times. So they came here to fulfill a certain tikkun, and if they completed their tikkun, Hashem is going to take them out of this world, but He's going to use this specific specific parent or so on as a way for Him to fulfill His will anyway. So there's good and there's bad coming out of the same thing. At least it's one simplistic way of explaining it. Of course, there's deeper deeper uh, things from it. Yeah. It's also true that the son has the chance to save his father through becoming a tzaddik, save the sins of the father, and he's the only one who can yes. bring the father to Ghanaian. 100%. 100%. Sometimes they, this causes uh, families to do tshuva. Many people do tshuva. For the most part, from my experience, almost every single person I've ever seen that, does, that did tshuva did it because something bad happens. Sickness, all types of disease, money loss, marriage problems, kids issues, death. I mean, there's countless problems that happen to people's lives, but usually that's what happens before they do tshuva. In Mikhtav Me'eliyahu, volume 3, page 295, he says, Shabbat is the greatest of all the revelations of the Divine Spirit. If someone does not observe Shabbat as he should, or if he fails to indulge in physical pleasures on Shabbat, or to behave in a manner that behooves its sanctity, he will not enjoy the arrival of the Mashiach. Rav Shimshon Hirsch, Nefail Hirsch, demonstrated that various rules governing the halachot of Shabbat conform to this concept. For example, the sages taught that the Torah did not forbid the act of a melacha that simply ruins an existing item. If someone breaks down a house for the purpose of destroying it, he hasn't desecrated Shabbat. But if he breaks down a house in order to build a new edifice in its place, he's desecrated Shabbat. The act, the same act is considered forbidden melacha when it's performed as constructive, creative act, but not when it's done simply for the sake of destruction. So in essence here, the Rabbi Eliezer Hirsch explains that even the details of the Alachot Shabbat 
obviously you can do the same thing. One is allowed, one is not allowed. You have to. So that's why the sages before this was I was supposed to say that the only way you're going to know how you're not violating Shabbat is by learning Alachot of Shabbat. So it's very, very important for each and every single one of us to learn the Alachot of Shabbat. But until we get to a point where we do what Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel did, we were already starting to prepare for Shabbat on, on, on Sunday, that means there was still something missing. There's still part of us that doesn't understand the significance of Shabbat. In the Gemara Masechet Chagigah, page 15a, we have the famous story of Elisha ben Avuya, a.k.a. Achel. He was one of the rabbis of Rabbi Meir Baranes. He went off the derech, became a complete idol worshiper, heretic, all types of crazy sins, murderer. But in the beginning, as he was beginning to sin, not everyone knew that he became a cher, that he became a uh, bad rabbi. So he went to a zona. He went to a prostitute. And he asked her for services. Now he was a famous rabbi. He wasn't some uh, local guy that no one knew. He's one of the gedolei adol. So the Zona says to him, wait a minute. Aren't you Elisha ben Avuya, the big sage? So Elisha ben Avuya takes a radish from the ground. He sees it as, you know, he's in the garden. He took a radish from the ground, he pulled it out of the ground and gave it to her as like a gift. You know, in those days they didn't give iPads and iPhones. They gave radishes and apples. So he took a radish from the ground and he gave it to her. But this happened on a Shabbat. So taking out a radish out of the ground is a hundred percent a sin deoraita. It's a biblical sin from the Torah. Not allowed on Shabbat. And the Zona knew this. So right now this guy that she thought was one of the Gdoleado just violated Shabbat. She says, oh, you must be someone different. Acheru. You're someone different. What's the Musa scale here? The Zona was saying to herself, listen, even if he's a big rabbi, it's always a possibility that he's going to come to a Zona. It's always a possibility that he can't control his desires and go to a prostitute, even if he's a big rabbi. You know how you see these guys with the big strimals, the jackets, the whole thing, but you see him at the casino, or you see him at the, you know, other garbage places? Unfortunately, we all have desires. And some of us fail. She says, even if he's a big rabbi, maybe, maybe fail to come to a prostitute. He couldn't control himself. But there's no way in the world that he would violate Shabbat. Can't be the same person. Go to a prostitute, you can fail for that test. But to violate Shabbat, who in their right mind would fail for that test? We learn this from a zona. Do you understand what's happening here? Marama Sechet Shabbat, page 32a. Rabbi Yossi says there's three inspectors of death that are created and tied to a woman. We repeat them every time in, uh, in prayer. 
before Shabbat. Three things that a woman is Shemachem, punished for and killed at the time of labor. The sins of Nida, Chala, and kindling of light. So Chazal asks, why? Why are you going to kill her for these three things? I mean, it seems like not really a big deal. Okay, Nida, I understand. I mean, somebody to, uh, to, to a man being with his wife when she's Nida is a worse sin than him being with his own mother. According to the punishment, the punishment for being with his mother is a, is a lesser of a punishment than him being with his wife when she's Nida. So we understand, okay, Nida, okay, death penalty, got it. But why is a sin of chala or a sin of kindling a light, you know, lighting candles, get her to be a death penalty? A little magzim a little bit, a little extreme. Because both of them have to do with Shabbat. Both chala and the kindling light have to do with Shabbat. When you dishonor those things, you're dishonoring the Shabbat. You're lighting the candle, but you're lighting it two minutes too late. You violated Shabbat. One minute too late. Shabbat's already in. Instead of it being a mitzvah, it's the biggest sin in Judaism. You want to make a mitzvah. You want to light candles before Shabbat. One second difference turns it from a mitzvah to the biggest sin in Judaism. The biggest sin in the entire Torah. Gan Eden or Gehenom. Gemara Maseret Rosh Hashanah, page 17, says there are certain types of people that will never leave Gehenom. The sinners, eventually their Gehenom ends. They're there for five years, ten years, fifty thousand years, a million years, whatever. Different punishment, different times. As I said before, there's no concept of time like we have in this world in Gehenom. But he says in the Gemara, there's certain types of people that will never leave Gehenom even after the Mashiach comes, the world ends, and the fire of the rest of Gehenom ends, but their Gehenom will never end. One of them is a mean, which is someone that's a machtia rabim, someone that causes other people to go to idol worship, to leave Hashem. That's one. We understand that one. It's logical, someone that kidnaps Hashem's son or daughter. It's understandable why Hashem hates him forever. It's understandable why Hashem calls him an enemy. He stole Hashem's son. He stole Hashem's daughter from him. He brought them to Christianity. He brought them to idol worship. He brought them to reform. He brought them against Hashem. It's understandable why his punishment will never end. Understandable. What's not understandable to us until we understand the significance of Shabbat is that the Shabbat violator is right in there with him. That's how significant Shabbat is. In the Beta Mikdash, anytime we made a sin, we had a way to repent. We bring a korban. You turn on the light by accident, accident, accidental, shogeg, accidental sin, you bring a korban. You make an accidental sin, you bring a korban, you bring a sacrifice. Gemara Maseret Iruvin, page 69 says, We accept korbanot 
from Poshay Israel, from the criminals of Israel, the thieves, the liars, all of those criminals, we accept korbanot from them to help them do tshuva. They're going to come, they're going to give the korban, they're going to hear the Levine sing, it's going to break their heart, they're going to do tshuva. But if he's a mechalel Shabbat, we don't accept this korban. We don't accept this korban if he's a mechalel Shabbat. We accept the korban of the idol worshiper, but we don't accept his korban. understand what Shabbat is yet? Now a lot of people say, okay, this is all rabbinical, this is all Zohar, Gemara, all these things. Where does it say in the Torah? Where does it say in the Torah? It's really that bad. Let's go, let's see. Book of Leviticus, five books of Moses. Doesn't get any better than that. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3. We have a story of the first Michalel Shabbat in history. His name is Slofchad. Chapter 15, verse 32, and it says this. Translation The children of Israel were in the wilderness, we were in a desert. And they found a man gathering wood on Shabbat. We're not talking about fire. We're talking about driving on Shabbat. We're not talking about smoking cigarettes. We're not talking about that. Talk about you took a few pieces of wood, put them together. That's it. We're not even talking about sewing. Sewing, you know, sewing. Okay, sewing. You can think. Okay, sewing. It was like sewing. I don't know. Don't sew. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about erasing. We're talking about taking a few pieces of wood. Putting them together. Tick. Go in the field, take a few pieces of wood. That's all he did. Tchil Shabbat. Not allowed to gather. Not allowed to gather. So he was gathering pieces of wood. But to us, it's not even, it's even a sin. Yes, it's one of the 39 restrictions. It's one of the 39 things you weren't allowed to do because that's one of the 39 things we did for the Mishkan. So this is what he did. When is this? One week after we got the Torah. We got the Torah, a week later, maybe he didn't read all the Alachot of Shabbat yet. He didn't have time to read all the Alachot. It's a big, big book. It's not just one, it's three of these. It's a big book, all the Alachot Shabbat. He didn't get time to read all of it. Doesn't matter. Says he violated Shabbat. Okay, let's see what happens to him. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron. And to the entire assembly, they placed him in custody, they threw him in jail. For it had not been clarified what should be done to him. So they threw him in jail immediately because they didn't know what to do with him. We'll explain in a second what this means. Hashem says to Moses, 
The man shall be put to death. The entire assembly shall pelt him with stones outside of the camp. And so the entire assembly removed him from the, to the outside of the camp, and they pelted him with stones, and he died. And Hashem, as Hashem commanded Moses. So here you have several different types of death penalties we have in the Torah. The worst one is stoning. In so many words, it's graphic, but you need to know this. This will get you a little fear in your heart, maybe. First, they throw him off of a two-story building. In case he doesn't die, they already have a boulder ready for him, which they roll right after him to crush him. In case he still doesn't die, he's got Superman skin. There's already, as the boulder is dragging him, there's a bunch of Jews who saw him sin. With stones in their hand, they're going to rock him and throw rocks at him until they kill him. It's the worst possible death penalty there is. This is what the Mechalel Shabbat got. But not just any ordinary Mechalel Shabbat. The one that just violated it a week after we got the Torah. Why is that a big deal? Why, why do I keep mentioning he's the first Mechalel Shabbat? Let it be the first. Let it be the 50th. Let it be 500. What difference does it make? If it's in the Torah, it's in the Torah. What difference does it make if it's a week after we got the Torah or if it's 3,000 years after we got the Torah? What difference does it make? The difference is the following. If anyone thought that Hashem is a vatran, He just lets go of sins. You didn't know, so it's no big deal. If He was just lenient and He would just say, you know what, you violated Shabbat, don't worry, this one's on me. Who would He do it for? For Him. Why? Number one, Gemara says he was a tzaddik. And the only reason he violated Shabbat was to show Am Yisrael that Hashem is serious. Meaning even his sin that he made was lishma. The sin that he made was to honor Hashem. And that's why there's a machloket of whether he has a share of the world to come or not. Some say yes, some say no. Point being, he was a tzaddik. That's why his name is mentioned in the Torah. Second thing is, if anybody would have gotten any leniency, it would be him. Why? He just got the Torah last week. He didn't even have time to read the whole thing yet. We have it for 3,300 years, we still didn't read half of it. We have a hard time reading Shtayim Targum. Two, two, two times a week the parasha, barely read it once. He had it for a week. You want him to read the whole thing with all the halachot, the oral Torah, the written Torah, everything? So if anybody's going to get an excuse, who's it going to be? Him, he has an excuse, he has all the excuses in the world. He has it for a week. Shem says no excuses. Shabbat, above everything my friend. Has the same value as all of the mitzvot put together. Why? Because the foundation of, of emunah in Hashem Barach. It's either believe, it's either you believe, I created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, or you don't. Now, what was the question here? This is the worst possible punishment ever. So, why does it say they put him in custody? Because it wasn't clear what would be done to him. I mean, 
Obviously, if you know Chilul Shabbat is getting a punishment of death penalty, what's not clear? The only thing that was not clear is if you backtrack to a story that actually happened early in the Torah, in chapter 24, verse 10, the book of Numbers, I'm sorry, the uh, Leviticus, And it talks about the son of a woman named Shlomit. Who got into an argument with the tribe of Dan. Got upset at God and cursed him. And it says here that after he spoke against Hashem and he cursed Hashem's name. He was a blasphemer. Hashem said, give him a death penalty. Death penalty. He cursed Hashem. Death penalty. This is not... So it's not really a uh, surprise. What's the surprise? The reason why they were waiting for an explanation from Hashem of what we should do with him is because they didn't want to put him, the Mechalel Shabbat, in the same cell as the blasphemer. Because they didn't want, they already knew that the Mechalel Shabbat is getting the worst possible punishment in the Torah. They just didn't know what the blasphemer is going to get. And they didn't want the one that cursed Hashem's name to feel bad about himself. That he maybe is going to get as big of a punishment as the Mechalel Shabbat. That's the only confusion. We'll finalize it with a couple of points. As Zohar says, even if someone who knows a lot of Torah, studies a lot of Torah on a regular basis, but is a Mechalel Shabbat, he has no share of the world to come. In Milchilta Parashat Yitro, he writes that a Shabbat violator is considered as if he's shouting in the middle of the street to the one who spoke and created the world, that he didn't create the world in six days. Not only is he violating Shabbat, but it's like he's shouting to the world, hey, you didn't create anything. He's worse than the blasphemer. As I mentioned before, Rabbi Eliezer Ashkenazi, on Panach of uh, Torah the Kabbalah 207a says they feed a mechalel Shabbat retamim in Geenom. Retamim is coals that never go out of fire. They never stop being fire, never stop being lava. That's what they feed them. I don't know. I think about that for half a second. That already makes me have to do something about my Shabbat, make it even better. I keep Shabbat Baruch Hashem. But just thinking about that for a second, that's enough. But listen, this generation is Am Kshe'olif. It's a, it's a tough nation. We have to do everything we can. But this, by the way, all of these things I'm mentioning is all for from people. Everything I'm mentioning, I'm not mentioning, I already finished. For the secular people not keeping Shabbat, I was already finished with them 20 minutes ago. Why? They got the point. Michal Shabbat, not considered Jewish, that's already enough. 
The rest of this is for the Frum people that talk business on Shabbat in the Bet Knesset. That when Shabbat comes, they wait all the way to the last moment before they shut off the phone. The ones that when it comes to Shabbat, it's like they're not really so excited about it. They can't wait for the weekend to start. They go to Beknesset a couple of hours, but they're waiting to go to the movies to see all the nudity and Hashem Elohim, what else, in the movie theater. Half religious, half Ta'avat Hashem. The Mechalel Shabbat is the first one that will be attacked by Amalek. Zohar, Parashat B'Shalach. The reason why Shabbat is mentioned when you talk about the Torah, five books of Moses, every single time. It mentions Shabbat, it mentions the holidays, Shabbat comes right before them. The reason why is because Shabbat is more significant than all of the holidays. And a Mechalel Shabbat is not protected by Hashem. Hashem Echem. This is Tikkunei Zohar, Akdama 12. In the Zohar Bamidbar, Parashat Bamidbar, it says there's a special place in Geinom for Mechalel Shabbat, as I mentioned before. Because he lit a candle of fire before, it was time. So the other Reshaim that are in Geinom, they light the fire to burn him. Now, in case people think that the five books of Moses is the only place and it's only about lighting fire and that's it, you don't have to travel too far. You can just go to the rest of the Tanakh. You go to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 19 to 27. says the following. Thus said Hashem to me, Jeremiah is talking to the nation of Israel, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people through which the kings of Judah enter and through which they exit in all the gates of Jerusalem and say the following to them, hear the words of Hashem, O kings of Judah and all of Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter through these gates. Thus said Hashem, beware for your souls, do not carry a burden on the Shabbat day to bring into the gates of Jerusalem, and do not bring burden out from your houses on Shabbat. You shall not do any manner of work. Sanctify the Shabbat day as I commanded your forefathers. But they did not listen, and did not incline their ear, and they stiffened their neck, in order not to hear, and in order not to accept the rebuke. And it shall be, that if you truly listen to me, the word of Hashem, not to bring a burden into the gates of his city on a Shabbat, and to sanctify the Shabbat, not to do any manner of work on it. Then kings and princes who sit upon the throne of David will enter the gates of the city, riding chariots and horses, they and their officers and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city will be inhabited forever. And the people will come from the cities of Judah and from the environs of Jerusalem. From the land of Benjamin to the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, 
bringing burnt offerings, peace offerings, meal offerings, and frankincense, and bringing thanksgiving offerings to the temple of Hashem. Up to now, he's saying, listen, stop talking business in shul, in so many words. He's going to the gate. The gate is where the entrance of the Bet Mikdash says, stop talking business. Tit. It's not saying, listen, you should uh, give extra korbanot, donate 50%. It's not saying that. Stop talking business in shul. Tit. Stop talking business in Shabbat. Stop being a Shabbat violator that's faking it like he's keeping it. And if you do that, my love, the kings will come through, the Mashiach is going to come, you'll be ruling forever. That's what Jeremiah is saying, word of God. But if not, but if you do not listen to me, to sanctify the Shabbat, and to not carry a burden, and enter the gates of Jerusalem on Shabbat day, then I shall set a fire to its gates, which will consume the palaces of Jerusalem, and not be extinguished. In so many words he's saying, if you continue talking business on Shabbat, I will destroy everything. And he did. He destroyed the Bet HaMikdash because they didn't stop talking business. Every single time somebody talks about their jewelry they have on 47th Street on Shabbat, every single time somebody talks about their stock quotes and what stock they bought or they didn't buy on Shabbat, every single time somebody talks about some property they want to buy or not want to buy or they own or they fixed, every single time you talk about anything but Torah on Shabbat, you, my friend, are destroying the Bet HaMikdash all over again. Carry that on your conscience. But if you do keep the Shabbat, you keep it holy. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 118, says the following about you. The one who has Onik Shabbat, treats Shabbat with respect. He's not watching TV in the background. He's not pretending to keep it, but he's really not. He's keeping Shabbat. He's honoring Shabbat. He's excited about Shabbat. He's already buying stuff and preparing on Sunday for Shabbat. The whole week he's excited for Shabbat. He already knows how much Torah he's planning to learn on Shabbat. He's not going on Shabbat. They'll sleep all day like a cow. This whole stupidity that people think they're supposed to sleep all of Shabbat. That's not Shabbat. Your Torah is worth a thousandfold on Shabbat. If it's worth a million dollars for every minute you learn during the week, times that by a thousand for every minute you learn Torah on Shabbat. Every minute you learn Torah on Shabbat, you fulfilled the entire Torah. And you're going to be sleeping, you moron. Didn't sleep on Shabbat. They asked him, Kvodarabo, you see, you're struggling sometimes. You know, come on, go to sleep. He goes, how could I miss out on the Torah of Shabbat? It's so expensive to sleep. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 118, says that the one who actually has the true oneg of Shabbat gets all of the deep wishes of his heart fulfilled from heaven. You want to be successful, you want to find zivug, you want to have good tzaddikim children. 
You want to have refuah shlema. You keep Shabbat. Extra, you learn on Shabbat. Celebrate on Shabbat. You do Shabbat like you're supposed to. Where there's a smile from ear to ear. From beginning to end. Whatever's in your heart. That took a break on Shabbat. Hashem's going to take care of you. That's the zgula. People look for zgulot all day. Zgula for this. They put the red string. They put this one. They put that one. They become monkeys. They become this. Forget the zgulot. Want the biggest zgula in Judaism? Shabbat. That's all you need. Beginning to end. Honoring Shabbat is more valuable than 1,000 fasts. You fast, people fast, especially Hasidim. They fast, if they make sins, or they want to purify themselves. It says, you keep one Shabbat, it's more valuable than if you fasted a thousand times. Meaning you fasted for three years straight. Three years straight. One Shabbat's worth more than that. One Shabbat. 25 hours. Eat, drink, learn Torah, enjoy yourself, sing to Hashem. More valuable than fasting for three years straight. And last but not least, the reason why Chazal explains to us that Shabbat is the foundation of Emunah is because where do we learn that it was a big Emunah test to, to follow Shabbat or not? Where? Where is the big test? The manna bread. When Hashem gave us man, He gave us food from Shemaim. He gave it to us for six days. He said, on Friday I'm giving you double portions. So you don't go collecting on Shabbat. Don't go collecting any food on Shabbat. Whatever you have on Friday will be enough for Friday and for Saturday. So you could enjoy the Shabbat, not worry about collecting food or parnasah or anything. I'm going to bring it to you all the way to your house. Now, Parashat Aman, chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, talks about how we got this man, but it also talks about how we failed to test some of us. And we didn't listen, we were greedy. We didn't have enough emunah, we, didn't, we weren't sure if we're gonna, the man is going to be enough. So we went out anyway. To go see if there's more mana. Maybe somebody's extra hungry for Sudash Lishit. Maybe it's not going to be enough. We didn't have any Munah in Hashem. So they went out. And Hashem says to Moses, How long is it going to be that you violate my Shabbat? How much longer do you want me to tolerate these people that are going against my daughter? How long? What do we do? We went lit fire, went burned cars, went shot guns. What do we do? They went to collect food. Desecrating Shabbat. You have no emunah. And this is why for each and every one of you, if assuming you keep Shabbat. You don't keep Shabbat, this is not going to help you. You don't keep Shabbat, not one of your prayers will be accepted by Hashem Barach. This is what we read already from Shlomo Melech. Shmuel Melech says to us, someone who doesn't follow what the sages say, doesn't follow the Torah, even his prayers are to'avat Hashem, they're considered disgusting to Hashem. When you don't keep Shabbat, it can't help you. You have to try to keep Shabbat. Don't watch TV, stop sinning at the very least. 
synagogue later on, Kiddush later on, all the other things that are hard for you maybe, later on, at least stop sinning, stop driving on Shabbat, stop watching TV, stop ripping paper. Basic thing, it's not a big deal. Sleep the whole Shabbat if you can. Just stop violating it. Eventually you're going to start being a Talmud Chacham. You're going to learn on Shabbat, you're going to honor Shabbat, you're going to eat on Shabbat, you're going to sing on Shabbat. It's going to turn into the best part of your week. But at least for now, stop sinning. Stop being the enemy of Hashem. Then if you do that, then this Gula will really help you. What's this Gula? This is Gula not from me. This is from one of the Gdolei Historia. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Miriminov. Zatzal who said, this also precedes him before even, anyone that reads the Parashat Haman, Exodus, chapter 16, from verse 4 to verse 36, the whole story of the manna bread, the whole story of the manna bread, where Hashem brought us, we complain to Hashem, we need food, Moses and Aaron says, we're nothing, what are you complaining to us? Go complain to God you don't have any food. What are you complaining to us? Who are we? We decide you have food, you don't have food. God says, don't worry, I'm going to give them food. He gives them the manna bread. He gives them food from Shemaim for 40 years. And it tells the whole story of approximately 30 verses of the story of what happens, of the people violating Shabbat, not having any emunah, going to collect food. It says, you read this part. This is one chapter in the Torah. You read this every day. And this is a zgulah for Parnassah. And why is it such a significant zgulah for Parnassah? Because this is the only thing you're allowed to read for Parnassah, even on Shabbat. You're not allowed to pray for health on Shabbat. You're not allowed to pray for Parnassah on Shabbat. Shabbat is pure thank you, Hashem. But this, my friend, this is verses from the Torah. You're allowed to read this on Shabbat. And it is gula for Shabbat. And it is gula for Parnasat Tovah. You do this every day, it works. I know for a fact. So Bezat Hashem, all of these things that are a little scary, but are also a little bit encouraging, will shed some light on our Shabbatot, will give us an idea of what Shabbat really is. Because the Mishnah ends, it tells us we have to take things seriously when we read Kiyat Shema because it's the foundation of our belief. When we pray, don't get so comfortable with your prayers. You're supposed to have serious Kavanah. Renew your prayer on a regular basis because Hashem is merciful. But at the same token, He's not just going to let things go. You violate Shabbat, He's going he's to punish you. You violate all the Torah, He's going to punish you eventually. Yes. Mercy and he has patience, but eventually time comes. But also don't ever forget, you could always do tshuva. So don't judge yourself to the point where you think you're a wicked person. That's how the Mishnah ends. Why is it important for Chazal to tell us don't judge yourself as a wicked person? Because if you judge yourself as a wicked person, you say, you know what? I already violated so many Shabbatot. Hashem is never going to accept me. No, my friend. Hashem is not you. Hashem's mercy is beyond your imagination. He'll always accept you back. But you have to do tshuva. You have to be genuine. If you seriously take tshuva seriously, He'll accept you, you'll be next to Him. But if you choke around, and take it like it's like, whenever you feel like it's hafif, 
You're making your situation even worse than what it already was beforehand. So Bezat Hashem, this wakes up our, our neshamot, this gets us to really understand the significance of Shabbat. It's everything or nothing. It's either you have Olam Abba or you don't. And Bezat Hashem, this is not only for the seculars that are still not sure about Shabbat, now this gives you a certainty, but more importantly into the Frum world that are not as Frum as they think they are. We need to get better. We need to get better because if we violate Shabbat, we're destroying Bet Migdash. If we keep it, we're building it all over. Any questions? Uh, what is it? Uh, how come you didn't say anything about you uh, forgiving? Because Shabbat is not a time that you're supposed to ask for forgiveness. But Shabbat is a time that you're supposed to thank Hashem for everything He's already done for you. You have the rest of the week to do that. But in essence, when you honor the Shabbat, in essence, He rewards you with forgiveness and everything else. Because technically, as you said, one of the ways that you could do tshuva for idol worship is keeping your Shabbat. What does it mean, uh, Shalom, fear? Word fear. Fear? Yeah, what does it exactly mean? Yeah. What does you fear know, of Hashem mean? He says, you should fear Hashem. You should fear Hashem, meaning you should fear sinning. You should not even, every time before you take an action, before you do anything, you think about it first, before you do it, before you eat, before you drink, before you go outside, before you do the business deal, you think about Hashem first. Wait, what does Hashem think about what I'm about to do? Does He care if I'm eating kosher or not kosher? Does he care if I cheat this guy or not? Does he care if I overcharge him or not? Does he care if I go pray or I go back to sleep? Meaning, Yirat Shamayim, fear of the Almighty, means that you're considering what Hashem thinks, even before you think about what your own desire is. Because if you think about what Hashem thinks, then you're also going to think about what the consequences are. Because Hashem is not one of our bodies. Hashem has consequences. He has reward or punishment. There's nothing in between. There's no such thing as an action that has no consequences. You're either going to get reward for something or you're going to get punished for something. There's no nothing. So when someone is thinking about Hashem, he should be thinking, hey, Hashem approves this, which means I'm going to get a reward for it at some point. Hashem rejects this. He disapproves of it. Oh, I'm going to get punished for it. That's your Hashemayim. That's the basic explanation of Yirat Shemaim, elementary explanation of Yirat Shemaim, but it's the most needed thing that a person has because it's the foundation of connection to Hashem. If you remember in the prayer, in the prayer you have every morning, you read a, a few verses from the Torah. One of them is a verse that we read where after Am Yisrael crossed the Sea of Reeds. It says, Am Yisrael saw the hand of God and they feared Him. And they believed in him and in Moses' servant. This is exactly word for word what the, what the verse says. So what does it mean? And they saw the hand of God, and they feared him, then they believed in him and Moses' servant. So the Chazal explains to us, they saw the hand of God, meaning they, they saw that what just happened here, not just the ten plagues, not just the fact that they went from being slaves to being masters, but the sea splitting, them going through and enjoying the whole trip, getting apples and oranges and all types of fruits along the way, not even having tired feet because the ground was made in such a way, flattened in such a way where they actually didn't feel any pain or tiredness from walking. 
on the bottom of the sea, which is usually a very rocky place. They enjoy the trip. The Egyptians, on the other hand, were destroyed. The biggest civilization in the world, millions and millions of them were just killed momentarily. Millions of them. So they saw this is, this is not an accident. Not one Jew was hurt, but the entire nation of the Egyptians was killed except the whole. It's not like a, uh, okay, if some, some, if some Jews were killed, some Egyptians, it's okay, it could be nature, and you explain it in some other crazy way. But here was Mamash, hand of God. We saw the hand of God here. Even though technically it was enough to see the plagues, that was the hand of God. Here they saw, this is for sure. So they saw the hand of God, they feared. Why they fear? Because as soon as you know that Hashem really is involved in this world, unlike what the modern day crazy philosophers tell you, or they say that maybe God created the world, but then He left, like the Greeks used to say. As soon as you know that God does care whether you do Netilat time or not, as soon as you do see that Hashem cares whether you keep Shabbat or not, as soon as you see Hashem does care whether you're with a Jew or non-Jew or not, as soon as you see that Hashem cares about everything, of course you're going to be scared. As soon as you, because you know that Hashem is also in control of everything. He's in control of the oxygen in your lungs. He's in control of the blood cells that you have. Whether you have the number of white blood cells that's enough to fight the disease or not. Whether the red blood cells will travel freely or they're going to clot. Because in the entire brain that you have that has more wiring than all the telecom that we have in the entire world. It's such a precise mechanism that all of your blood has to travel through it. But even if one tiny, tiny microscopic drop of blood stops. Just decide, you know what? I'm going to take vacation today. That's called a brain hemorrhage. Stroke. Shemechem could be death. One, one blood, one little, little, little tiny little cell. You can't, you can't even see with the naked eye. Cause all that damage. Hashem's responsible for that cell. The hair on your head, each one of those hairs, Hashem tells, Hashem tells Yov, tells Job, each one of the hairs on your head has a name, and I know it. He's responsible for your hair, even getting the panasa from your sweat. Once you know that he's responsible for everything, he's in charge of everything, and he cares about everything, how are you not going to be scared? And once you're scared, then you can say, I believe in God. Because I believe in the right one. Before that, you believed in something, but it wasn't God. It wasn't the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. It was something else. It was idol worship. Because the God of Israel, he cares about everything. He notices everything, he pays attention to everything, and he's responsible for everything. Once you, care, once you care about that, you believe in that, you fear that, you could say you believe in it, and then you can say, okay, you know what? What did the rabbi say again? So, that's what I was trying The word scare, I mean, you have to actually be scared of that. 100%. Uh-huh. Scared, so like, fear, scared, scared, like I mean, scared 100%, scared like the scaredest thing you could possibly, like, for example... When you think about sinning, technically you should be shaking. I should be going on my knees to my car right now. <laughs> yeah. 
scared of punishment. But again, we have a hard time visualizing the words that I'm saying. So we think that everything is like a... It could happen, maybe it's not going to happen, maybe he's just saying it, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. So that's why generally the, the whole uh, journey of tshuva, whether it's for someone from or someone not, the journey of real tshuva starts first and foremost with belief in God. But not belief in like, oh, I believe God created the world, because even a monkey knows that God created the world. But actual knowledge that God is in charge of everything. And there's a scientific way to do that. So you know, We made a, Hashem, a, a whole lecture about uh, Torah and science, so did Rabbi Mizrahi, or much you know, before us. He has a four-hour lecture about it. We have about an hour or so, hour and a half lecture about it, different scientific proofs of God, where you know for sure that God created the world, but not just any God, the God of Israel. Proofs from the Torah, scientific proofs that God is real. So first, it's getting knowledge that God is real. Second is getting knowledge, knowledge, not just like a uh, belief. There's a difference between belief and knowledge. Belief could be wrong. Knowledge is like, I know that you're in front of me. Because I see you. Belief, I believe you actually like the lecture. But you might be wrong. That's belief. So knowledge that you actually are here, you need to get to a point of knowledge that Hashem exists, knowledge that it's the same Hashem that's in the Torah, knowledge that the Torah is the only divine document. There's no other. After you do that, then you start learning what actually it says in the Torah. Once you know that Hashem created the world, gave us a document called the Torah, you know this for sure, then you start delving into what it actually says in the Torah. And usually people do all three of them at the same time or shortly after, one after another. That's how you get to a point. Once you do all of that, uh, little by little, you're going to have more and more Yirat Shemayim, more and more fear of Hashem, um, and in essence, a serious and wonderful and enjoyable connection with Hashem, where even though the foundation is fear, it's better to have fear as a foundation to your belief in a real God than a belief in a false God that's based on nothing. You know, just believing that God's just going to give you good, good, good things, it's not, this God, it's not the God of Israel. There's reward, there's punishment. Of course, He loves you, of course He created you, He wants good for you, but if you're His enemy, you'll get punished for it. That's what half the Torah talks about. There's reward, there's punishment. Half the Torah is reward, half the Torah is punishment. So, it's the first thing is the answer is that you need to get to a point of knowledge of God. After you get the knowledge, then you see what actually what God actually said. And once you actually see the two, this lecture and many others that we've done, Baruch Hashem, will be a lot more applicable because you'll understand what you have to be scared of. But until you know for sure what God really is, like to, to, to the level that we can understand, it's hard to be scared of something you don't know, you're not sure if it exists or not. Once you know for sure He exists, and once you know for sure that he wrote this book, it's easy to be scared. You know, so that's that's it. And then, Be'ezat Hashem, eventually what you get to a point is that the highest level of Yirat Shemaim, the highest level of fear of Hashem, is fear of a disconnect. Not fear that he'll just punish us. There's levels of Yirat Shemaim, there's levels of fear. The highest level of fear of Hashem is fear of a disconnect with him. Just like, for example, someone's fear of uh, you know, his marriage, he's not afraid that his wife is going to beat him up. If it's a healthy marriage, she shouldn't beat him up. 
she's not afraid that he's going to beat her up because if it's a healthy marriage, that shouldn't be part of her fear. But they're still scared of each other. What are they scared of? They're scared of a disconnect. If they truly love each other, they're scared to be on different pages. They're scared that if I yell at her, she's not going to want to talk to me for the rest of the day. That's a nightmare for me. That's a spiritual nightmare for me not to be able to talk to my wife all day or all week. I can't handle that. That is the highest level of Yerat Shamayim. Fear of a disconnect with Hashem. A fear where you're going to make him unhappy. And that highest level of fear is the beginning of loving Hashem. It's the highest level of fear is the lowest level of loving Hashem. So when you ask, for example, why do some people talk about love Hashem, love Hashem, love Hashem, in today's world it's very popular to talk about loving Hashem. And the answer to that is that most people don't really know the true definition of loving Hashem. Because the only way they would know the true definition of loving Hashem is if they had the highest level of Yerat Shemayim, which is very, very hard to attain. So at our level, let's first start fearing the sin and grow from there. Can't skip Anything else? Amen. Amen.